what are you drinking, Tucker Crog? Glass of water. I'm not getting a famous American rock star a glass of water. I'm not that famous, okay, and I'm an alcoholic. Well, you'll fit right in. Welcome, everyone, to episode 18 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and as always, I have my co-host here, Scott Harvey. Scott, I know you're officially a 2L now, classes have started, and you're even kind of a big deal on the undergraduate mock trial team from what I'm hearing. How has the start of your new year been? It's been great. Like you said, uh, uh, I'm getting going with the uh, head coaching job that I have as a head coach of Wake Forest undergraduate mock trial teams. We've been holding tryouts this week. Um, and I think we, we have a great squad, uh, knock on wood, to uh, to make a deep run this year. Um, you know, I guess that's what UVA thought last year and March Madness as well. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, knock on wood, I think we, we might actually make some noise in the in the college mock trial world this year. And if not, I mean, LinkedIn keeps sending me a bunch of other head coaching jobs um, that I might be qualified for now that I've put head coach on my LinkedIn page. So um, I, my, I, my job security, you know, I'm not too worried about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it sounds like that, that Florida head coaching job might, might be opening up soon based on the performance last night. Yeah, I mean, Dan Mullen, only two games in, but um, it's not looking good for him. I, I, although everyone was, was crowing last week after they beat Charleston Southern, you know, known powerhouse Charleston Southern. Yeah, I, um, I heard but, they're about the same as Wake Forest uh, mock trial, so... <laughs> You might be right about that at this point, but uh, <laughs> but I just saw I was just seeing on Twitter where like right after the game a Florida running back said he was transferring. So are you serious? It's, That's it's already starting. Yeah. Oh my goodness, yeah. he's lost the locker room. He really has after <laughs> two games. It's not good. I, he he he's, he reminds me of Butch Jones. I'm honestly really glad that uh, that Tennessee didn't end up with him in the coaching search. Oh boy, Butch Jones. Well, today on the podcast we will not be talking too much more about sports, but we will be talking about quite a few movies, including the Netflix rom-com To All the Boys I've Loved Before, another film called Just the Girl, or Support the Girls, a pair of documentaries, one of the legendary Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, appropriately called RBG, and another documentary about the famed children's educational show host Fred Rogers, Won't You Be My Neighbor, as well as another romantic comedy of a more British flavor, Juliet Naked. That's a lot of movies, Scott, but first we are starting today with the discussion of the latest mystery thriller on the market, and the first such mainstream Hollywood thriller to feature an Asian-American actor leading the line. And that is, of course, Searching. Directed by Abney Shiganti, Searching follows the story of a widowed husband, David Kim, played by John Cho, whose 16-year-old daughter, Margot, played by Michelle Law, goes missing one night after leaving her study group without ever making it back home. Distraught at the loss of his daughter, David files a missing persons report with the Silicon Valley Police Department, who assigns Deborah Messing's detective Rosemary Vick to lead the investigation into Margot's disappearance. The rest of the story follows David, who tirelessly works around the clock to find his daughter before it is too late. Scott, that obviously sounds like a very generic mystery thriller movie description that might not be anything special, but this movie is anything but generic, with its most interesting hook, of course, being the presentation of the movie itself, shot entirely from the point of view of smartphones and computer screens. So, what did you think of Searching? Well... 
here's what I'll say. I think that this movie really puts into perspective for me um, the conversation that we had last week or last episode about the Oscars Best Popular Film category. Um, and obviously there's already been a change to that, which we'll talk about later in the show. But I think this movie really puts that conversation into perspective because on one hand, this movie is a genre film. Like you said, it's, it's a mystery thriller. It's, it's even, you know, even the setup sounds pretty generic as far as these kinds of movies go. But on the other hand, this movie is innovative in both its storytelling and in, like you said, the technical aspects of the movie. It is incredibly well acted. It is emotionally satisfying. Um, and really, like, there's nothing whatsoever that distinguishes this movie from um, other movies that will get nominated for Best Picture that have been nominated for Best Picture Um you know, other than the fact that it is a genre film and therefore in the Academy's eyes, like somehow disqualifies it um, for qualification in, in that in that category. But honestly, I think this movie is absolutely brilliant. Um, I wasn't sh- quite sure what to expect. I have seen some of the other movies in this um, variety, like Unfriended is the main one that um, has come out so far. Um, that, of course, was a, it was more of a horror movie. It was about some friends who were haunted by the, the dead ghost of, of uh, someone who they bullied while they were at school. And I, I thought that, that was a good movie, not a great movie. Um, I think that um, the gimmick, they, they, they were still, you could definitely see them still ironing out how to make like this gimmick of the whole thing being told on screens work. Um, because like they had to have in the movie like that, one of the elements of the plot was that they had, if, if anyone left or if anyone tried to log off the webcam, then they were going to get killed. And so that, that was the way that they were able to like with through the story, like keep everyone on their screens for the entire movie so that they could actually pull this thing off. Uh, and I think that one thing that I really like that searching does is it broadens the uh, scope of what these kinds of movies can be um, because it doesn't, just focus on John Cho sitting in front of the computer in his bedroom the whole time, like we get an unfriended. I mean, we see him going. We see him going outside. We, see, you know, it, we switch from computers to smartphones at various times in the movie. Um, we also like there are times when we'll just be seeing news footage um, of something that's happened because you know it's it's a moment where you naturally wouldn't be recording. Um, and so I think that the movie is able to keep that central gimmick going throughout um, the movie. Um, without uh, sabotaging like the narrative integrity or like the, the logic of the narrative um, and making us say, well, like, hey, why would this person be recording this right now or something like that? And the other thing which I think really sets this movie apart, and I, I mentioned it earlier, is, is the emotional element of this movie. And that is really the most unexpected part of the movie for me. Um, and because, you know, like I said, I expected sort of a... I expected that this movie you know, would be pretty good. I, I thought that it would be very suspenseful and that it, it would probably have a story that would click, but I wasn't expecting how emotionally resonant it was. I mean, from the very first scene, the very first scene sequence of this movie, I'm already going to spoil and say that that's my favorite sequence in this movie by far, um, mm. you know, for when we get to that at the end of our review. But um, I, it's absolutely stunning. And like, it took my breath away just five, for the first five minutes of this movie. Yep. And I was like, Okay, here we go. I'm ready to go. Like I'm all in on this movie. After that, after that sequence, and I think it was uh, Christy Lemire on what what the flick described it, and I was actually thinking this in my head as I was watching it too. It's like a, the open that opening sequence from Up, but on a told on an iMac. 
um, that's exactly how this first sequence goes, and it's really like uh, incredibly effective and like incredibly emotional as well. But they keep that element going throughout the movie, and mm-hmm. there are just these small moments where right when you're in the thick of the suspense, right when the plot really kicks in, yep. and there are these little emotional moments which really like anchor you back to this is why you're care- this is why we care about this story. Um, and that leads all the way up to the conclusion of this movie, which I think almost matches the opening of the movie in terms of its emotional resonance. So, yeah, I absolutely love this movie. I was blown away walking out of the theater, and I, I really just want to see it again. Yeah, you know, I was thinking the same thing about you. I, I didn't know what to expect going into it. I do like mystery thrillers. I understand that, you know, I, I there are movies in the world that I enjoy that aren't necessarily good, and, and I think there are a few mystery thrillers out there that I enjoy that maybe aren't particularly good. But I was really surprised by the quality of, of this movie, in part because it's just written and directed and produced by people I've just never heard of before. So I like no expectations going in based of like quality, yeah. right? There's like no guarantee of quality coming into this. The only person who, I, I mean, the only people who I was familiar with were John Cho and Deborah Messing. Um, right. They're the only ones associated with this production that I'd ever heard of before. And so, like you, I didn't know what to expect going in. I had heard, I, I try these days to stay away from Rotten Tomato scores before I see a movie that we were doing for the podcast, um, but I had, I had heard rumblings on Twitter that the movie was, do, was, was reviewed fairly well, though I didn't know exactly how well it was reviewed. And I walked out of this film, and I, like you, I'm just, I was just absolutely blown away. I think this is probably one of my favorite movies of the year so far. I think that, exactly to your point, not only was the storytelling and the acting of, you know, a high, a high degree of quality. I thought that the um, emotionally uh, resonant parts of the film the, were done extremely well. And that's the part of the movie that I think, to, to use your words and to use a phrase that I think you've already used, just really took my breath away in the different parts. And I think one of those is, is the first five minutes that you described, you know, kind of setting the context for the story. And then also, you know, the last 10 to 15 minutes I think also are really breathtaking in terms of not only incredible storytelling and incredible acting, but also um, incredibly powerful, and just in terms of, of how they affected me in the movie theater. And I, like you, you know, this is a mystery thriller. I think the whole hook of mystery thrillers is that you see it one time, you don't need to see it again because the kind of the whole movie is 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 you know in in a way ruined for you because now you know what's going to happen. But I I like you, I walked out of the theater and I wanted to see this movie again because it's so good. I, yeah, I mean, I agree, and I think that the way the story is told and the way it's paced is it's extremely well paced, I think, because it just it keeps it moving so that you can't really think about, oh, like, who might be responsible for this, because you're, yeah. you're really just focusing on what's happening next. And, you know, once you do find out you know, who is responsible, what's responsible for, for Margot's disappearance, yeah, it does make you want to go back and watch it again and, and try and piece it all together. Yeah, t- totally agree. I think that it's a hundred. It's a, it's about a hundred minutes, and I think that it's a really tight hundred minutes. I don't think there's. I really can't think of a scene that's wasted in this in this movie. I felt like there was always something relevant, and you know, it, it, the type of movie that it is. If there's a scene that you thought maybe wasn't as relevant at the beginning, it it probably in, ends up being relevant at the end once everything kind of unfolds. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So I think maybe we want to dig in a little bit deeper now and talk. Uh, and well, at least we'll we'll take spoilers off limits. I don't think we necessarily need to talk about spoilers for this first part. 
Um, but then when we move on to some of the other characters, I think it'll become necessary. But let's start with John Cho, uh, who plays David Kim, the father of, of Margot, who's the girl who disappears and is obviously the, the linchpin of the narrative of the movie. But what did you think of John Cho's performance? What did you think of David Kim as a character? Just talk me through how you felt about him. Yeah, I think that, you know, we're talking about how emotionally resonant the storytelling is, but I think that one element of that that we, we aren't really talking about is John Cho's performance. Um, right. Because I think he does an absolutely fantastic job in this role, and um, you know he's an actor which who I haven't seen a ton of before. I thought uh, I really enjoyed his performance last year in a little movie called Columbus, um, also a dramatic movie. But he is known more for his comedic work, of course, in like the Harold and Kumar series. Um, yeah, that, and, and I remember him from—is it Fast Forward, the TV show? Okay, from, I don't know if you saw that I ever. Don't remember that. I don't think so. But yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah I mean, going. he probably was. Yeah. For me, like he, he, he also was the emotional heart of this film, um, and we see like the the transformation that he undergoes as this movie goes on, and I think that, that John Cho plays that brilliantly because he starts off as just this like morbid curiosity of like what's going on with my daughter, like you know, is she really okay? Because you know, there's a time period where he thinks, well, you know, she's just not calling me back. She's mad at me because I told her to take out the trash and she didn't do it or whatever, um, and. You know, is she's probably okay, and so it's just like, why, why is she doing this? But then, as the movie goes on, we realize she's missing. Of course, the police come in. Um, we just see what he starts going through because, of course, he's already had to go through uh, some some emotional trauma with the loss of his wife. Um, but um, and, and so, and I think John Cho plays that brilliantly because we we see him go from curious um, to desperate to utterly paranoid um you know to this point where he's well don't want to get into spoilers but there's one scene in particular where he starts suspecting someone um who ultimately isn't responsible but the scene where he confronts this person um you know he's he's kind of just gone off the gone the wheels have come off really and he's he's uh he's given he's lost everything in trying to to uh find his daughter um and so i think that john cho plays that brilliantly by you know, even as he's undergoing this transformation, even as he's becoming more desperate, he keeps us emotionally involved, and he is the heartbeat of this movie. We wouldn't really care about finding Margot if it wasn't for, you know, the clear dedication that uh, John Cho and David Kim put into this um, quest. Yeah, no, I, I agreed. I, I, like you, had heard of John Cho more for his comedic roles. Obviously, I think he's definitely best known for... Uh, Harold and Kumar. He's also pretty well known, I think, for being um, what's it? The, the guy that he played a role in American Pie. That's like not super. It's not a big role, but I think it's like he's the guy who popularized the. I think the term MILF from American oh, Pie. I hate, I hate that movie, so I wouldn't be able to know. <laughs> and he's also he's also I think Sulu in the new Star Trek films. That, yeah, that's right. I totally forgot about that. He is. Yeah, so that's like the stuff that I was like more familiar with him. So I was a little surprised yeah. to see him in a mystery thriller. Like even the Star Trek series isn't. I mean, that's not a comedy, obviously, but yeah. it's not a thriller either. So to see his name attached to it, again, going back to not really sure what to expect from this movie, and, you know, he delivered the goods. He, from start to finish, he doesn't let you down at any point during the movie, and you really feel like you're experiencing all the emotions that he's experiencing yeah. in the movie, and you get the full range, right? Like like you say, you get this kind of you know, struggle, struggling dab, not struggling in the sense of anything, but just trying to deal with the loss of his, of his wife and, and you know, have, maintain a 
strong relationship with his daughter who he clearly loves deeply but doesn't quite know how to navigate, you know, even a year plus removed from his wife's death, doesn't quite know how to navigate that relationship. And, you know, you get at first just trying to be a, a reasonable dad, right? Trying, You mentioned the taking the trash out, um, you know, try, trying to be reasonable, but also, you know, expecting expecting his daughter to, you know, do do the chores that's asked of her. And then you get things to spiral out of control when he becomes, you know, distraught about when he first realizes that his daughter is missing and he feels like he's waited too long to report it to the police and then you know frenzied as he like manically goes through all of her friends on facebook and tries to figure out what they were doing the night she disappeared to the point where exactly like you said the wheels just entirely come off when he confronts uh said character that you were referring to that we'll hold off a bit talking about uh and and i just think that he really gets everything and then you know when you get to the actual climax of the movie and you just really experience everything through John Cho. And that's not an easy thing to do to have on one actor for the entirety of the movie. And so I'm really impressed with this performance. You know, you mentioned at the very outset that because it's a genre film, it's unlikely to get, you know, nominations or even, you know, a nod from the Academy whatsoever. And I hope that's not true. I'm too jaded to think otherwise, but I think that this movie and, and John Cho probably, probably deserve uh, a, a few plaudits. If, yeah, if anything, I think John Cho's performance, and I think that the editing in this movie, which is next level awesome, um, yeah. also deserves Oscar consideration. But, I mean, the whole movie does, but if anything, those are the two things which I think really stand out. Agreed. Alright, I think this next part, maybe for a few minutes we can stay out of spoilers, but I think spoilers are going to be necessary. Let's talk about Deborah Messing, let's, uh, her character, Detective Rosemary Vick, who's the Silicon Valley Police Department's investigator uh, who they assigned to Margot's disappearance. What did you think of Deborah Messing? Yeah, I'll, let's, I'll, we will get into spoilers now. I'll just go ahead and say um, at the outset. But, um, well, first of all, whenever I see Deborah Messing now, all I can think of is Billy Eichner and Billy on the Street. I don't know if you watched that show, but um, Deborah Messing plays a rather humorous role in it. But And I'm very excited now that there are new episodes coming out. But, um, but I also really enjoyed her performance in this movie. I think that in a similar way to John Cho, we also see the emotional uh, turmoil that this character is going through, like written on her face throughout the entire movie. Um, and we don't really realize why she is so emotionally involved until, you know, later on in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um and, and, but I think that she plays it well because there is that emotional level to her performance and we think, oh, you know, maybe she she obviously just really cares um, about what's going to happen, what, what's happened to Margot. She has a son of her own. You know, she probably really relates to what David is going through. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why she's really going above and beyond her duty as a police officer to try and find Margot. But also throughout the entire movie, there's, there is something that's not quite right about her performance. There, that's not quite right about her performance or about her character. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that when we do get this ending reveal, and like I said, we are in spoilers now, but, um, spoilers that, turn away. Yeah, yeah, that of course that she is covering for her son, who is the one who is responsible for Margaret's disappearance. Um, I said to myself, and this I think this is what you should always say to yourself in a good movie after the you know the final yep. twist is revealed. You should say, "Well, I, how didn't I see that before?" Um, because I think that this movie does drop clues uh, as it should. Yep. I, I think that you can't, you absolutely can figure out who is responsible 
if you pay really close attention. For me, like I said, since this is the first time I watched it, um, I was really just trying to keep up with the really fast pace of the movie. And I yep. think that the, that's, the movie does that well because it doesn't let you think about it too much. Um, yeah, you, maybe it doesn't let you arrive at the conclusion that Deborah Messing is the person responsible. But I really did enjoy her performance for that reason because I think that she she keeps you slightly unsteady whether you really realize it or not. Yep. Um, to the point where when it is revealed, um, you're like, oh yeah, I see it now. I think that's such an excellent way to describe it. I think this movie we talked earlier, or I talked earlier about how tight this movie was, how fast paced, and there's not a wasted moment in this film. And I think that's true. And I think that pace prevents you from really stopping taking the time to think about okay why does this character make me feel uneasy or why why does she always have an answer to every single question even before he asks them and you know i think that the movie just does such a good job with preventing you from connecting all the dots but giving you all the dots to connect and part of that is of course the storytelling the direction by shiganti the you know the script which I think was also written by Shiganti and Sev Ohanian, and then also of course absolutely have to give credit because this is the person we're talking about to Deborah Messing's performance because she not only I, I think she really masters this role and I think that's a, a word that I don't use too often I think that she just really navigates her character extremely well like not not only did she I mean this sounds like super super basic right but like she obviously delivered her lines really confidently but it's also she had this certain you know air about her that you know she's this really competent detective who you know at first maybe you just chalk it up to the fact that she's just really well regarded that she's you know won you know commendations and things like that uh, and and then you you realize at the end of the film that oh maybe maybe you were just making excuses for her and you know the reason why she was so on top of it, like you described, is maybe a little bit shadier, um, a, a lot shadier actually. And I think even at the end, you know, you get this scene where she's being—I mean, interrogation is a strong word—but she's being interrogated by uh, her fellow, you know, Silicon Valley Police Department members after she's been arrested. And you know, even in that moment, you get—I think—still a strong performance from her. She doesn't. She doesn't give up after you know. The, the ruse is up, so to speak, on her character. And the fact that she kind of finishes off the performance is something that I really appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that in most of the reviews I've seen, her performance has kind of been an underrated element of this movie. But I think that's a shame because she does do a really strong job. All right, yeah. So there's a few other members of the supporting cast. Uh, I don't know if it's worth going through all of them, but you, have, of course, have... Uh, David's wife and Margot's mother briefly. Uh, obviously, she doesn't get too much time on screen. And then you also, I think, maybe one of the bigger roles that we haven't talked about yet at all is uh, Peter, who is David's brother, played by Joseph Lee. Um, and he plays a pretty... He's probably the most significant character in this film besides you know, the lead two uh, actor, actor and actress uh, and John Cho and Deborah Messing. And then you also have Margot, of course, who's played by Michelle Law. So you have Michelle Law, you have Joseph Lee. Is there anything you want to say about either of these characters or any characters that I might be missing? I think I think that Joseph Lee does a good job. Um, I think that, you know, I, earlier I was alluding to the, the scene where John Cho confronts his brother because he thinks that his brother might be responsible um, and kind of just goes off the rails a little bit. Um, but I think that, that Joseph Lee does do a good job of this performance where, oh, on one hand, he is this fun-loving guy who, like, um, you know, he's he's kind of the he's definitely the more uh, he's the fun uncle. Alpha. 
Yeah, he's the fun exactly. He's the fun <laughs> uncle. He's the more out there brother of the two. Definitely. Um, and but also, I think that you know, during this this one section of the movie where where he is start to he is suspected a little bit by John Cho. Um, you know, I, I I was also saying to myself, well, I could see it because yeah. um, I think that he plays the character really well. And obviously, you know, we do find out that he was selling weed to Margot, but you know, he didn't have anything to do with her disappearance. Um, but I, I think I, he know, was. I, think I don't he think he was selling it to her. I think he's probably probably just giving it to her. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I think he probably was giving it to her. That's, yeah, that's your family discount. Yeah, um, <laughs> but, steep discount, steep discount. Yeah, that and that was one of the ultimate moments for me where I was like, "Well, duh! Like, how could I not see that this is what he was saying in the text?" Like, I, I kind of like uh, felt felt like I was an idiot because I actually was starting to suspect him when it is pretty clear that oh, well, he's really talking about selling her weed, especially because, like, early in the movie, we have a conversation where, uh, I think it's, like, their first conversation in the movie where yeah. David and Peter talk about the fact that yeah, Peter yeah. smokes weed all the time and, yeah, like, he's like a co- jar of weed on his counter. Yeah, he's, know? like, cooking dinner, and, and yeah. David's like, oh, how's that How's that going to fit into your your meal or whatever? Yeah. Or something like that. It was funny. But keep going. No, I, that was all I had to say. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I don't really think I have too much more to add. I, I don't... I mean, he is the most significant character, I think, besides the two leads. But the thing is, this movie focuses so much on the two leads that there isn't too much for these other characters to do. But what he's asked of, he does it well. He doesn't, um, you know, he keeps his card close to the chest. I think he plays the, you know, extremely wary and defensive uh, brother in that particular scene that we're talking about. I think that, you know, he's very cagey, for the lack of a better word. Um, And I think that... That's exactly what that scene needed, right? Like, of course, like, relative to kidnapping and murdering your niece, selling her weed is way better. <laughs> um, but obviously, to them, you know, when you zoom out, to, and by them, I mean, uh, I, I mean Peter and Margot, uh, the, I think that it's, it's obvious, you know, why they would never want to let David know that that was, like, a, re- a part of their relationship, right? Uh, to, yeah. that, that he was selling, or sorry, giving her weed. Uh, smoking weed together and talking about things that I'm sure David would wish Margot would talk to him about. And I think that for one element of that scene, you have Peter, uh, played by Joseph Lee, who's doing an incredible job. I think he does that that coyness, that caginess really well. And then when he actually discovers what was going on, David, you know, is just even more distraught than he was already. Uh, Just more disturbed by the fact that you know, he really, I mean, he already, you'd already gotten to the line, I think, in the point in the movie where he was like, yeah, I don't know my daughter. But not only does he not know his daughter, but I think the realization that his brother had a better relationship with his daughter than he did uh, really, really tore him up. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I don't know if we have too much more to add about the cast, but as they come up throughout the rest of our conversation, of course, uh, feel free to say more. But we've talked about the plot and the narrative already. I do want to give it a few more seconds, a few more minutes here get a little bit more airtime, because I do think it is a very, very strong narrative. And so let's just take a few moments. I don't know if there's any particular scenes you'd like to talk about that you thought were powerful, or if you just want to talk about the plot I mean, at a higher level, uh, about how it unravels and, and whatnot. But uh, what, what did you think of this plot? I mean, I, I think I have a sense based on what you've already said, but what did you think of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it holds up pretty well from, like, even in thinking about it in days afterwards... Um, you know, there aren't any, any obvious logical gaps, which I think jump out to me. And, you know, maybe I'm just missing something. Maybe there's something that I'm not remembering. Um, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe there is like a plot hole at some point. Uh, I 
mean, I'm sure that there probably is. Like, it, it's hard to make these kinds of movies where there's not at least one. You know. Yeah. The only one that I can, the only one that I kind of thought of was oh, did he talk? Did David talk to Vic's son? Like during when he was like going through all of her Facebook friends. Um, but, oh, that's true. Well, were were they fr- friends? Well, well, my my oh, well, yeah, yeah. my conclusion was that they probably weren't friend. friends on Facebook. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, we haven't talked about that that element of the plot yet, really, at all. Yeah. And I don't know if we need to, but that the whole Vic's son being uh, kind of a creep. So yeah, well, I, but as far as the plot goes, like I do think you know, again, I really like the pacing of it. I really like the way that it uh, messes with the gimmick and like you know, it, it shows us the different screens and different ways to get the information across. Um, and like I said, it always comes back to that emotional center of the, of the movie. Like there, there are just moments and one that I think of one that comes to mind is like when he logs in on his computer to his wife's account and we see like a little Norton antivirus pop up that comes up that says, Oh, you haven't had an antivirus scan in a year. And we know it's, yeah, however many days it's been since his wife passed away. And it's just those little moments where you know, you're in the thick of the plot, you're in the thick of the suspense, and but then there's this little moment that, like, you know, anchors you back to that emotional heart of the movie. Uh, and so I think that's, I think the movie does that extremely well. Um, yep. And honestly, I don't have too much yeah. more to say about the plot. I think, like I said, I think it holds up. And, and from a logical standpoint, like, the, the characters weren't making decisions where I thought, I don't understand why they're making this decision or there weren't things that happened. Like, I think that everything was pretty believable throughout the entire movie. Yeah. I think that's a, a really great way to put it. There's never, there's nothing that I've thought about in retrospect that I was like, wow, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get why this character would do that thing. Uh, I mean, cause even when we, to go back to something we were talking about just a few minutes ago, like even when you're thinking about, you know, Peter and you know, why didn't he just say like that this, this was happening or whatever. And you're like, no, if I, if I was selling, if I was like smoking weed with a six, my sixteen year old niece, like mm-hmm. I would a hundred percent not tell her father. Yeah. Um. So you know, even that, I, I I get totally in, and I think to your point about the emotional, emotionally touching moments of this film, we talked about the beginning, we talked about the end. You've mentioned this brief scene, kind of in the middle, right there. I think that that's something this narrative, this story weaves in seamlessly. And extremely powerfully, and I and I really don't think that can be understated how difficult that can be to not feel like you're yanking your viewers out of the moment, and in the midst of the moment, still giving them something in this you know intensely suspenseful movie, something that's really emotionally touching, and something that you know I I don't feel like I'm not a, I'm not someone who never cries, and I'm not someone who cries easily, but this I think I teared up about three different times in this movie, and that's I, I that's did, saying something. I did at the ending as well. Yeah, yeah I, I also did at the ending, I was saying. Yeah, I think that I, I teared up a little bit at the beginning, at sort of at the end, when you when it finally becomes clear that that uh, Pamela, I think, uh, David's wife, it, it was, was dead. And, and, you know, I think a couple times at the end, one, when they first, uh, when they first are, you know, start, when, you, when, the, when there's first a chance that Margot's still alive again. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, at the, at the very end, when he when, sends the text, yeah. When he sends the text, when you get the picture of of him and Margot um, at her first day of, I forget, was it a, a junior year or senior yeah. year? I can't remember which it is. Um, but it was really, really powerful. And to just, I don't think I can emphasize this enough, I just really didn't expect that from this movie. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, that to me, that's what puts it above and beyond um, the realm of conventional thrillers. I mean, like good conventional thrillers, yeah. um, but I, it takes it above and beyond for me and puts it alongside something like Nightcrawler or Gone Girl, which I wasn't as emotionally involved. Or I wasn't emotionally involved in the same way mm. in those movies that I was in this movie. But those, I think that those movies are good comparison points for Agreed. how viscerally you get involved in this movie. Agreed. I I think that's true. I'm not. A, I'm personally not a huge fan of Gone Girl, but I understand the oh, okay. visceral parts. I mean, I mean, I do think it's still a visceral movie. I, I was going to say yeah. I'm not a huge fan of the movie, but yeah. I agree with what you're saying about it, and I think that's a good comparison. Yeah. I don't think we have any much anything else really to add except yeah. go see this movie. So let's Absolutely. enter our wrap-up phase. We already know what your favorite scene is, but I'll give you a little bit more airtime to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that this first scene is just so amazing. Like, this first sequence, um, for the reasons that I've already said, and just the way that it uses different things that we're familiar with like the music we see the music like progress as the the days go on you know we see different social media like different you know videos like we see calendar updates and there's just all these little subtle things Mm -hmm. that they do in this scene and subtle ways that they get their point across and tell the story without beating you over the head with here's what's happening um you know like for example like erasing the calendar you know obviously when she does pass away she he erases from the calendar that um, yeah. that she had another treatment day or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, like, that's that's all you need to say. I mean, that's all you have to do to get the point across. Like, we don't need, like, these really overly dramatic, weepy moments. And I think that that's why this scene is so special. And then, again, I also think that the ending, and, and in particular, when he sends the text, and you talked about the picture, but I think that there's a moment where so early in the movie of course he wants to send this text to his daughter that says mom he says like i would be proud of you mom would be too yeah but he can't he can't send that mom would be too and Mm -hmm. um you know then of course we learned especially through his conversations with the brother we we learned the problem is he wasn't asking about um he wasn't talking to margo enough he wasn't asking her how she felt about things and so finally we get this moment and he types to her i would be proud or i'm proud of you and then we see the little typing symbol and like and that two second little gap i was sitting there and i was like i know what's about to happen and like when the text comes through i just like i I exhaled literally because i was like it was just so satisfying and like so emotionally uh resonant so those moments for me really stand out yeah i agree um it's such a powerful moment in the in the film and, and i can't agree with you more about the opening sequence being you know there's no dialogue there there might be some mm-hmm. words said in some of the videos in that are video shown or something, yeah. but there's no dialogue from the present time and it's just such a powerful way to deliver everything and you and you feel like you know so much at the end of the sequence it's really yeah, it's exactly. really incredible you do uh, everything you need to know to understand the rest of the movie yeah, absolutely. I think that for me, one of my favorite scenes is, and this, and this is heavy spoilers, but um, yeah. my one of my favorite scenes in the movie is maybe even just because of the experience that I had in the theater. So I actually was fortunate enough to be in, in a relatively crowded theater seeing this movie, mm-hmm. um, and I thought that was a cool experience because of this particular yeah. moment where uh, you have the funeral arrangements for Margot. Uh, put together and it's like a final I forget exactly what the context is immediately before this happens but you get this like sorry for your loss screen on it and it's the same it's the picture of the same the woman photo, yeah. yeah the stock photo and there is just an audible massive gasp in my uh-huh. theater 
Um, and it was exactly how I felt internally. I'm not someone who usually makes a lot of noises during movies. Um, but that was a spine tingling moment. And I, and I get that part of that is from the theater, not from the movie itself. No, but, but that's that's part of the experience, and that's part of the strength of the movie. I think that it has those moments. Yeah, and and I think that that moment is still would still be powerful even outside of the audible gasps from the people in the theater. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my favorite was the person who, about five seconds after the gas, was like, "Oh, <laughs> it was like a little bit late," um, yeah. but it clicked for them eventually. Um, yeah, good. Yeah, no, but that was a really powerful moment. But I think that if I had to. If I had to actually pick my favorite scene, I'd have to pick the one that you've the ones that you've gone with already. But I think that was a really nice a nice moment and, and is less emotionally resonant and more just breathtaking in a different sense. When you first get the really on the nose yeah. clue that something is not quite right here. Yeah, I think that is like the one moment too that stands out for me of like the plot really turning the screw and like really pulling the rug out from under you. Yes. Oh, fish and chips. All right, let's put a score on searching. What are you going to give searching? Well, I think that, here's what I'll say. I think Shiganti is aiming for Hitchcock in this movie so much so that he actually puts his own name in the movie uh, <laughs> in one of the text messages, just like uh, Hitchcock was famous for doing. And I think that uh, the master of suspense would be very proud if he were still alive to see this movie. Mm. And I'm giving it a 10. Yeah, same. I'm also giving this movie a 10. Yeah, let's go. All right, there it is. I was I was worried that I would look bad just giving two two movies like tens back to back because no, I, I yeah. did give I did give three identical this, strangers. It's a special movie, like it, it deserves it. Yeah, it, but I feel I feel good about getting a ten. Hearing you give it a ten, I don't feel like I've just gone soft the last couple weeks yeah, and started no, g- giving out tens willy nilly. Um, right. Anyway, I, all right. So I think that should just about do it for our discussion of searching. One of my favorite movies of the year sounds like one of your favorite movies of the year. It's the first movie that we both given tens to, I think, you know, I, I hesitate to say, because I, I, I think about these in different things, and Scott, jump in here if you disagree with me. I I, I was talking to someone who was going to go see one movie this weekend, and they wanted to see, and I told them they should see Black Klansman or they should see Searching. And they asked me, all right, like, which one do I have to see? I'm like, the one you have to see is Black Klansman, which I didn't give a 10 to. Uh, you didn't, I don't think you gave it a 10 either, if I'm remembering correctly. No, I um, gave it like a 9.2, I think. Uh, so I wouldn't, I mean, this movie is not culturally relevant, but like, if you have the time to go see this movie, this movie is so, so good. Um, and I yeah, think, and it, I think it, I think it is great to piggyback on what you're saying, um, for like kind of what you were just describing, like that Friday night, like popcorn theater experience with like a huge crowd. Like yep. this is the absolute perfect movie for that. Yeah. Uh, for me, this is the best thriller of the year so far. I know there are a few others of slightly different genre. There's a couple horror thrillers out there that have been pretty good. But this is definitely the best one for me, and, and easily really there haven't been that many mystery thrillers that so far this year. But maybe there'll be a few more before the end of the year. Yeah. All right, let's take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing a very different kind of film, Juliet Naked. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, as you know, we cover the gamut of movies here on the podcast, and we now go from mystery thriller to romantic comedy here, because the next movie on our slate to discuss is, of course, Juliet Naked. Produced by famed rom-com producer Judd Apatow and directed by Jesse Peretz, 
Juliet Naked is the story of Annie Platt, played by Australian actress Rose Byrne, whose long-term boyfriend Duncan, played by Chris O'Dowd, is obsessed with a washed-up, 20-year retired American singer-songwriter Tucker Crow, played by a, dare I say, Jack Nicholson-esque Ethan Hawke. I don't know if that resonated with you at all. As Duncan's obsession with Tucker slowly drives Annie mad, the discovery of a raw tape of one of Tucker's albums, Juliet, called Juliet Naked, catalyzes a series of events that leads to Annie and Duncan's breakup and a seemingly outlandish meetup between Annie and Tucker who might find themselves falling in love. Scott, I have two quick thoughts before I ask you to weigh in with your general impression of this film. First, one of the highlights of this movie for me was the rando at the beginning of the film wearing a Newcastle jersey. Uh, I, I don't know if you noticed this. It was like the opening no. shot after the prologue uh, when there's like the, the the landscape cinematography of like the beach um, uh-huh. right before they start Right, it's like with Annie's voiceover. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, there was a there was somebody wearing a Newcastle jersey on the beach, and I was Go just like, cool. yeah, seriously. Uh, and then two, uh, I love Rose Byrne, but why do they have an Australian actress playing a British woman? It's because people can't distinguish between the Australian and British accent so many times. I think. All right, um, fair enough. Yeah, let's but, let's let's start the let's let's get out of the weeds here. Let's start with your high yeah. level thoughts on this film. I'll say about it. To your comment about Ethan Hawke, I think that Ethan Hawke's performance, more than anything, is very Ethan Hawke-esque. Like, I can't imagine anyone else playing this role. Like, I think he was absolutely perfectly cast, and, like, I'm not, I'm almost convinced that he was a rock star during the 90s, and, like, has now gone into a different line of work. But, um, Maybe. But, yeah, so, obviously, we've talked about a couple other rom- rom-coms this year um, that I have been... Uh, pretty high on and set it up in crazy rich asians last week or last episode um and i think that if we get one or two more of the same strength as those movies and also this movie um that i'm going to declare this the year of the rom-com um because i think that this movie belongs in the same league as those other two movies that i mentioned um Mm -hmm. i think that it is very charming um and it's of course based on the book by nick hornby i think you mentioned um but it has the same um, sort of feel that a lot of movies based on Dick Hornby novels uh, do, whether it's High Fidelity, you know, About a Boy, stuff like that, um, where you have a relationship, you ha- I mean, you have familiar romantic comedy trappings, but the humor somehow feels a little bit more elevated, especially when you consider that Judd Apatow produced it. I actually wasn't aware of that, but this, from a humor standpoint, this movie is definitely on a higher plane than most of Judd Apatow's movies. And mm-hmm. also just the way that the characters behave and, and their relationships feel very mature and very more adult than you would see in the average rom-com, I think. Um, and, you know, to pick... Uh, to piggyback on something I've sort of already said about Ethan Hawke is I think that this movie is perfectly cast, even though we might, you know, Rose Byrne's accent is is a little weird considering she's Australian. I, I can't imagine, like, any three actors um, in terms of Rose Byrne, Chris O'Dowd, and Ethan Hawke, the three main actors in this movie. Like, I can't imagine anyone else doing a better job. Like, I think that they were perfectly cast in their roles. Chris O'Dowd, too, especially as, like, sort of this... I, I really loved his character, um of this like middle-aged guy who like is is too obsessed with um tucker crow as you said but also like there's there's something about this character that you just have to sympathize with and maybe it's just me from a uh music music fan standpoint i think Um, it's just i didn't feel this way at all (laughs) okay well I, i think more as the movie goes on and especially in the scene where he and Tucker Crow actually do have a conversation to each other. Like, yeah, I actually that, did kind of feel bad. That was good. For, that, that was a good uh, scene. Chris O'Dowd's character. But I think that 
I, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to come out a little bit higher on this movie than most people because of yeah. the music element. And I just love when, when movies can fuse music and whether it's in the story or just on the soundtrack, whatever, fuse music really well. And I think this movie does that. And I think it shows that Jesse Peretz, who's the director, is also a musician and was in the band The Lemonheads. Because I think he understands, um, particularly with the Tucker Crow character, <laughs> the right kind of music. Like, I think it's, when I hear the Tucker Crow songs that they play in this movie, I, I think this is exactly the kind of, you know, white, 90s white guy artist that someone like Chris O'Dowd would get obsessed with and would, like, think that this album was their whole life. Like, I think, it, and the way that the music is, it totally matches that. Um, so I think that the movie does that. But yeah, I mean, it's just really charming. I think that it's not a perfect movie at all. Um, but I, I had a good time and I, I got sort of what I was hoping for with this movie. Yeah, I think that I, it makes sense to me, and I thought this when I was watching the film that you would end up coming out more positive than probably the critical yeah. the critic reviews would be, or, or Which, I, I would I mean, be. It, the critics review critic reviews have been relatively positive, I think. But I actually haven't even looked at the, at the critic reviews to be honest. Okay. I don't even know what it's they've at been. Sixty seven on Metacritic, I think. So. Okay, that, that's that's pretty respectable. That's actually yeah, I mean, sure that's pretty good. Yeah, so, okay, so it's reviewed fairly well. For me, I really think this movie is a tale of two halves, almost. Okay. Um, I really was not feeling this movie for the first half of it. I was pretty, bo- I mean, honestly, I, I mean, I was pretty bored. I didn't really like any of the characters. I mean, I, I love Rose Byrne as an actress. Uh, my first introduction and my primary introduction to her uh, was on Damages, what the TV show with Glenn, Glenn Close. I don't know sure, if you've seen yeah. it. And I thought she was—I thought she was absolutely fantastic in that TV yeah. series, and I've loved her ever since. And I think that she does a good job. I think that Ethan Hawke does a great job. I think that Chris O'Dowd does a great job. But none of their like characters were like any any of their characters were characters that I cared about through the first half of this film. And I'm not sure what it is, but some point I'll say like the last third of the movie, something just started to click for me, and I really started to like. Uh, this movie a lot more. I think the last third really picks up for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I still haven't yet been able to figure out or put my finger on exactly what changed or why I didn't like the first part of the movie, uh, particularly kind of the the pre-Ethan Hawke, you know, this Tucker Crow character coming to, uh, coming to uh, Great Britain and meeting Annie. I think if I had to point to a specific moment... And to, to do something that you did in our last discussion of searching, uh, to go ahead and say what my favorite scene was, the uh-huh. meetup between uh, Duncan and Tucker on the beach yeah. is, I was almost out of, my, out of my seat laughing so hard <laughs> at that interaction. Um, I can't repeat what the actual scene lines are because yeah. they're too explicit for the podcast. Um, but they were really, really funny. And that's something that I want to say about this movie. And whole, even when I was not really feeling this movie and was kind of bored, this movie is really funny. It like, is. Yeah, like absolutely. I was laughing pretty consistently throughout this entire movie. I know that I, <laughs> I mentioned this to. I actually texted you this in the theater because uh, someone walked out of the movie like twenty five minutes in, and I thought that was ridiculous. Like I was pretty bored yeah. in the movie at that point, but it wasn't that bad. And I liked your joke that he probably just thought it was going to be a different kind of movie with the title Juliet Naked. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> but, these days. but I, I mean that to say that I, this, I mean, I didn't know what to expect coming into this movie. I knew it was a rom-com, obviously. And it took me, oh, I think, I think it took this movie a while to figure out what it was, too. And I think that uh-huh. the dynamic between the characters are and, and the relationships that you see play out on screen are all good. 
uh, but not great. I think that these, uh, although the movie is really well cast, I don't particularly like feel like there's a lot of chemistry between these actors and actresses. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Oh, I, I, I do disagree with that. I think that for me, that's one of the things that I like was that I thought Rose Byrne and Ethan Hawke had really good chemistry, and I think they were mm-hmm. able to overcome sort of the larger than life aspect of their story of, of, of you know, that here's this, this random woman who, you know, meets some famous rock, famous reclusive rock star and, like, they have a romance together. I think that they were able to overcome it because they had good chemistry and also because from their characters' perspectives, like, I understood why they fell for each other. And, like, I mm-hmm. think that that's something understated in a lot of romantic comedy. Like, even a movie like, this isn't a romantic comedy, but, like, Black Klansman, I talked about how I didn't believe the relationship between Ron and Patrice. I thought, like, I just didn't understand why these characters would be drawn to each other. Mm-hmm. But I think that I did understand that in this movie. Um, because I think that um, both characters are giving something to the other that the other person really wants, but can't have on their own. Um, yeah. And, uh, but I think that, uh, but I do agree with what you said about maybe this movie kind of figures out what it wants to be, maybe like halfway through, because I think that while it is ostensibly a romantic comedy, like I, I think the strongest parts of the movie are sort of the more family drama moments. Yeah, that's um, that's exactly where I was going with that. I totally agree. Yeah, and and the scenes with Ethan Hawke and like his his children and um, with with Rose Byrne trying to connect with those children as well. Um, those those scenes really were were the emotional moments for me. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think that a lot of the the moments in the film that struck me most were the moments, exactly like you've put it, interacting with his children. I'm thinking even the very end of the movie. I don't think... I mean, this movie doesn't really have any spoilers, so I, I think this is fine. Sure, yeah. Um, but, like, the, the almost one... You know, one of the last scenes right before the very end, or right before the epilogue, so to speak, when, you know, Tucker... Or Annie's driving Tucker back to London to... I mean, presu- I mean, presumably to leave, uh, to fly back to to the U.S. But then they end up going to his daughter's house, and she's just had a kid. And we find out that her husband or boyfriend, I suppose, uh, has has left, has up walked up and has walked out on her and and her and their child. And you see Tucker kind of you know embrace her, be the dad that he was never able to be. And I do think that the the parts of this film that were most powerful, exactly like you described, are these moments where Tucker has to fight uh, his own demons and figure out, you know, he talks throughout the entirety of the film, he talks a ton about this, and it was really annoying to me at some points, about just, like, how terrible of a father he was. Yeah. Um, and he, and the moments where he, where that ultimately, I feel like, resonate the most with me in this film, although the jokes were pretty funny for most of it, uh, are the parts where he just, you know, shuts up and actually deals with the fact that he hasn't been a good father and then at the end you get the payoff where okay you know maybe he's turning it around yeah and i do like that scene really in particular that you talk about where he goes to his daughter because we see the full circle moment of because uh, we we learn about his backstory with his other daughter grace um who he basically abandoned in a bathroom while he was at his last concert yeah. um and we get almost that exact same moment um where she gives him the baby Yep. And he's holding the baby, but also Annie is there, and Annie's about to walk away and just, like, say goodbye or whatever. And he's faced with that same decision of, what do I do? Do I, like, 
you know, abandon the child or whatever um, and go after Annie, or do I, yeah. um, you know, stay here with the child, take care of my daughter and, and, and my uh, grandkid? Uh, and this time he chooses to, to stay with the child. So I really liked the way that they brought that moment back as sort of this is the seminal moment for Tucker as he's faced with the exact same moment, but this time we see that he's learned his lesson. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, I think that's really well put. And I find it, and I think this speaks both positively and negatively to this movie, right? The, like, we're spending so much time here talking about the, exactly like you put it, the family drama aspects of this film. Mm-hmm. And this film is not billed as a, as a family drama. And I, yeah. I think the most powerful scenes are the ones we just talked about, the one that you alluded to where he finally gets up the courage to call Grace uh, on the phone, the, even though he's had her number since his mm-hmm. other daughter, whose name is escaping me, right? Is it? Lizzie. Lizzie visits him in the U.S., yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the film, he gives she gives him uh, Grace's number, and he finally calls it. He gets up the courage after spending all this time with Annie and kind of reorienting his life and his and his priorities. And it's too late. You know, he can't he can't do anything with that relationship. It's that that ship sailed a long time ago, and you know that's a really powerful scene because I wasn't quite sure what to expect out of that phone call. To be honest, when it was happening, yeah. yeah. Uh, and th- I mean, those were the scenes uh, that were powerful, and I feel like. You know, when I talked about the the last third picking up a bit, I think you get you get a lot you get a lot higher volume of those scenes, and and they really take the center stage over the kind of comedic romantic aspect of this film. Um, and a lot of that, and I, I know this is this is maybe a little bit mean, but a lot of that is a lot of the funny parts of this movie came with Chris O'Dowd, and a lot of the serious parts of the movie that I actually enjoyed beyond just you know laughing at the jokes came um, with Ethan Hawke with Chris yeah. O'Dowd not on the screen and. I, again, this is going to come off a little bit bad, but like Rose Byrne was just kind of like shepherding things along. No, I definitely think that um, while I do, uh, while I did think she had a good performance, like I liked her character, I definitely think that those two performances, you're right, are the stronger ones in the movie. Yep. Yep. All right. So, I mean, we've talked a little bit, bit about, not a little bit, we've talked mostly about Ethan Hawke at this point, which is fine because I think that that is the performance that to focus on. But I would like to talk a little bit about Rose Byrne and, and Chris O'Dowd. Uh, who plays Duncan, and I would like to talk about them, their relationship, their characters, uh, their kind of interactions on screen, because it's a it's a pretty important part of this movie, and it's part of the, I think it's the part of the movie that actually got, got me kind of bored, because I, I immediately understood, one, exactly who these characters were with respect to each other, so like, in their relationship, <laughs> and I knew what was going to happen, I didn't find their interactions particularly interesting, like I said, I laughed at their jokes, but... Honestly, there was just something about some of their interactions, you know, pre-breaking up that just really rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't like very much, um, and I don't know of how you felt about this. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, 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 I think it's interesting that you were bored because I think that that's part of why the relationship isn't working, right? Yeah. Because Rose Byrne is bored. I think that's totally uh, fair. And and, and yeah. he's bored with her because she doesn't have the same sort of interest in. Tucker Crow as so obviously yes maybe from a viewing standpoint like from the perspective of an audience member it doesn't make for the most exciting fodder but um I think that it may maybe it makes a little bit of sense and I'm not gonna like let the movie off the hook for the fact that (laughs) that it's slow in the beginning but I think that we're supposed to get the fact that it is slow and that they are bored in this relationship I mean they've been together for 15 years and yeah and it doesn't seem like much has changed. Um, yep. So I think that, uh, you know, I, that didn't bother me as much. Um, 
But, I, I mean, you know, I, I think that, like I said, I think that individually these performances are good. I, I mean, I like Chris O'Dowd's performance a lot. I, like, I really believe this character. I really believe this that this character would be a real guy, that there's probably someone out here like that who, who feels the same way about, like, Kurt Cobain or Elliot Smith or, you know, someone like that. Um, and... And he's probably a lot like Duncan. Uh, but then, you know, like I said, I did kind of almost sympathize with him after a while, after that scene where he confronts Tucker Crow. And I think that this for me is maybe where I wanted more from the movie is in this scene between the two of them at the dinner table mm-hmm. um, where they have this confrontation where Ethan Hawke is in Tucker is saying, like, this album is, is not good. Like, it's worthless. Like, I, you know, whatever you're attributing to this album it's not right. Like it's not real. Yeah, exactly. And and but Chris O'Dowd is saying like you don't understand. Like I've devoted everything to this album. Like this album speaks to me. Whatever. And I, I really I really liked the yeah. where I thought it was going there. Like in this conflict between like art and artist, like or like artist and viewer fan. consumer uh, and yeah. yeah like and there's this relationship of like you know how do you how do you account for the fact that you've made something where you're not proud of it you don't think it means anything it's completely worthless but on the other hand here's someone who it's meant everything to them and clearly this album has spoke to spoken to them and like you can't deny the fact that um this album has you know been defining for for Duncan, for Chris O'Dowd's character. And so, like, you can't completely, as an artist, I feel like you can't completely dismiss the album just because you might feel like your own personal stamp on it is, is like, it's not significant. Um, you, you, you Because you never know what kind of impact that your art is going to have on other people. So I really like the tension in that scene. I just, don't, I just don't know if the movie went far enough with it. But I also think that if the movie had gone farther with it, it might have kind of thrown off the tone of the movie and what they were trying to do. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that I, it, that's a huge problem for me. But I do think that that's one scene where I wanted the movie maybe to go a little bit further. Because I think it is an interesting aspect. And like I said, I did feel for... Um, Duncan. for Duncan a little yeah. bit because I you know I, I don't know how I would feel if, if you know you devote 15 years of your life to something like this and then all of a sudden you you realize you you find out that like the the person who created this feels the exact opposite yeah it's like like every uh what's it Radiohead fan who only likes creep whatever yeah. and they find out that Radiohead hates <laughs> that song quote unquote yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, right. No, but I, I hear what you're saying, and I wanted. I would say that one exception to my complaint about like the tonal disparity between like scenes with Duncan and scenes with Tucker is is this scene, right? This exception, and I I really well one I really thought that you would like this scene. I really thought that you'd like this particular line, and I really like this line. I thought this line where it's like at the very end he's like kind of stormed out already, and then he briefly comes back right before he leaves. And he's like, you know, this may mean nothing. Like, your music may mean nothing to you, but it means everything to me. And it means you, everything to me. Yeah, and you I can't take that. that away from me. Um, yeah. And I thought that was really powerful. That's something that really resonated with me. And that's such an interesting thing to think about. And I hear what you're saying about, you know, oh, I really wish that maybe this movie had leaned a little bit more into. And I think that I would have liked that too. And I, But at the same time, I also hear what you're saying about it really would – it would add another dimension to kind of a, a, a movie that – maybe has too many dimensions to begin with. Maybe, yeah. Alright, so we've talked a little bit about Duncan. Um, not a whole lot. There's still a lot more that we haven't discussed about him, but I think that's fine. 
Um, but let's talk for maybe a few seconds about Rose Byrne. Ironically, the lead ag- the lead actress of this movie, the main character, but the one that we we're, we're saving to last to talk about, um, which probably speaks volumes. But go ahead, let's let's get your thoughts on Rose Byrne about Annie's character. What did you think? I've already kind of described her maybe a little bit too dismissively as a character who just kind of shepherds the events of the movie along. But what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the thing that I liked the most about her performances were, well, two, two sets of scenes, really. The scenes with her and Jackson, who is Ethan, uh, Ethan Hall, Tucker's... Um, youngest son. Like, younger son. Yeah. I, I really like those scenes because that's the thing that Annie wants throughout this entire movie. She wants a family. Yep. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, I, I mean, I believe their relationship because here's someone who has a huge family and like you know she feels like maybe she can be a part of it mm-hmm. but the other you know thing i liked about her performances are her scenes with ethan hawk like i said i think that they have good chemistry together and i like that the way their relationship starts out because you're not really sure i mean obviously because of the kind of movie it is you think maybe they're they're headed down a romantic path but for a long time there's not like overly romantic scenes between them like it's kind of like they're they're both just they're friends because uh, of the thing that the other person offers them. So like, you know, Tucker offers Annie a family and, and Annie offers him this like small town, like quiet life away from like all the distractions of the regular world. And, uh, which is something that they both want. So it feels natural at first that like their relationship is just like them bonding over that, over their, the thing that they're mutually giving each other. Um, but then it, it develops more into a romance. And so I liked that element of it, especially because the scene where um, where, where it, it eventually goes into the romance territory is like when they're at the uh, the museum where Annie yeah, works. The exhibit. And she literally just straight up asks him, like, so are you, like, interested in me, you know, like, sexually? Yeah. And I was like, I, I, I laughed because I was like, it just felt kind of like an awkward but also, like, it, it felt right for their relationship that this is like this is how it would eventually come out that like they have romantic feelings for each other yeah. because uh, I don't know the, the way that their relationship goes along it doesn't feel like it's headed towards a romance but it, it feels like it needs coaxing along and that's exactly what Annie does in this scene so I, I did like that moment but I mean I, I think it's I think it's a good performance you know I think that her character is a little bit of a sad sack and that's why maybe <laughs> we yes. don't. Uh, we, we're not talking about her as much, and we don't resonate with her as much. But I think she plays it well. Yeah, no, that that scene was really funny. It's like, are you interested in me? And he's like, in like right now, yeah, <laughs> in general. Yeah. Um, it was really funny. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, um, and then of course that that kind of romantic climax comes um, with you know uh, Ethan Hawke's younger son. I I've, I've already forgotten his name. There are too many characters. Jackson, Jackson uh, vomiting all over himself. Um, so you know feels right (laughs) it's what i want to do in romantic comedy sometimes absolutely (laughs) Um, not in this one this one is good yes exactly so i i do think that um one character that is worth mentioning i'm sorry to to, for my uh, two cents more on rose byrne i i I like what you're saying there i think that i think that's right i don't know if i have too much more to add but (laughs) calling her a sad sack is about right um yeah i will say that like she had she had some really great burns at the end of this movie of Duncan, with like the whole, the whole, yeah, yeah, I know that I would say that pun wasn't intended, but it was, um, anyway, (laughs) I think that, um, she, her, oh, particularly her uh, posting of her review, which I know like ends up 
being a very important part of the film because it's the only way Tucker meet. It's the way like Tucker first meets her or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that was just uh, that was great. I oh, yeah, I really loved yeah. the negative review of uh, of the Juliet Naked um, soundtrack. Anyway, album, yeah, yeah, album <laughs> soundtrack, uh, soundtrack of my life. Am I right? Um, yeah. All right. Yeah. So the other character that I do want to mention is Annie's sister, who I believe is is it Gina? I can't remember her uh, name. Roz is the sister. Oh, it's Roz. Okay. Yes. Roz. Who was Gina? There was a Gina in this movie. Oh, Gina was the was Duncan's mis- mistress. Sorry, right, right, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The other teacher. Yeah, the other teacher. Oh, anyway, yes. anyway, yes, Roz. Oh my goodness, what a great comic relief character. <laughs> yeah, I thought she was good. Um, like you said, for that for that comic relief purpose, uh, you know, the, all these scenes where they're like going out at bars and she's like trying to pick up women and stuff. I, like I, they made me laugh. Yeah. she spoke um, to me first. She must really like me. <laughs> yeah. Sort of just hearing her overanalyze everything, it, it, it definitely is some good comic relief. Yeah, no, it was. Um, but I think that's probably all we have to say about the characters. I don't know if uh, we obviously want to leave some time here for the plot, which we've have kind of it's kind of come out over the course because it's almost it's critical to some of these characters. The plot, obviously. But is there anything else you'd like to add about the plot? We've we've talked about the family drama aspects of it and, and analyzing Tucker's family situation, but we didn't give as much airtime maybe to. Duncan's kind of overarching narrative, and I don't know if you want to talk any more about the plot with his character. Yeah, I mean, I think it. At first, this was a scene, you know, the scene at the end where they find, they meet up again in the bar, and he's saying like, "Oh, I want to have children with you." Like at first, I was like, it, it rang a little false for me, but the more that I thought about it, I was like, it does make sense. Like that, obviously, you know, he's had he's had like this defining moment in his life. Like he met and, Tucker Crow. Exactly. He met Tucker Crow, and not only did he meet Tucker Crow, but like he he found out that maybe Tucker Crow isn't everything he's all cracked up to be. Well, he's definitely not. Not maybe. He's definitely not all that he's cracked up to be. He's definitely um, not all that Duncan that has Duncan cracked him up, him up to be. Up to be. Yes. yes. Um, so I think it does make sense to me that um, that he would he would say, "Well, look, forget about Tucker Crow. I screwed up. Let's have kids together." Um, and so I, I guess I, I have to say that I do like his arc, even though at the beginning it was hard to root for him because obviously, you know, he's cheating on, um, he cheats on Annie and he, uh, you know, is too obsessed with, with Tucker Crow and all this. Um, in the end, I think they did a nice job of bringing his character back around um, to the point where I did, I did sympathize with him. I don't know that I necessarily wanted Annie to, to be like, yeah, sure, let's have kids together. I, and I don't think it would have been right for her to say that, for her to be like that. Um, I would have I, really disliked this movie if that had been what happened. Yeah, but uh, but I, I think that they brought it home nicely with this character. Yeah, that, that's probably fair. I definitely agree with what you're saying about it's hard to root for him at the beginning. Honestly, yeah. I don't understand if someone was rooting for him at the beginning. Well, yeah. Um, I, 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 think, mean, I, I think the only thing is just that he just seems like so pathetic almost that it's like, I, I mean, it, it's not like he, he's like... But he's pathetic overly, in a bad way. He, he is, but he's not, like, overly malevolent, you know? He's just kind of, like, he's just a pathetic... He's arrogant. Yeah, maybe a little bit. I mean, yeah. I, I see what you're saying. I, I certainly wasn't rooting for him. So. Yeah. No, I, I just need to take that a little bit further and say, like, honestly, I, I don't get you if you're rooting for Duncan at the beginning yeah. of this movie. Yeah. I, I do get the sympathy for his character, maybe at the end, although I don't know if it... I was really disappointed. Oh, okay, I wasn't disappointed. I get why he came into the bar and asked those questions. I don't know if it's because he actually realized what, you know, he, I think part of it definitely is the fact that like, 
oh, like his world has been rocked, right? Like Tucker Crow is not yeah. is not the you know, it's classic case of people meeting their idols, right, and being let down by yeah, that. Yeah, never meet your hero. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not good for you. It's not good for your interpretation of them as, as your hero. And right. I think that it's a, it's a classic case of that, like I was saying. And so I do get that at some point. But at the same time, I don't know. Like, it, it, I'm not saying it's wrong. I, I definitely, I, like I said, I get why he came into the bar. But the fact that, like, that was even entertained was just like, yeah, like, no was definitely the right answer. There, there's yeah. no question in my mind that like yes would have been just such a strange outcome for this story. And I think that if anything, I didn't feel bad for him, right? Like yeah, the way the way that he acted throughout this movie, and I think even at the end in this particular scene that you're talking about, is still something to me that's just pathetic. Like this, like this, like Duncan is a sad, uh-huh. pathetic character, and it, yes, at the end he's like less of a bad pathetic character if if at the if I was talking about him being super arrogant at the beginning like his ego is deflated by the end um which is which probably feels about right for his character arc I just don't I just like I'm not that interested in this character right like he's just like honestly he's just like a really like crappy white guy <laughs> you know what I mean like he isn't very nice to the person that he was with for 15 years he wasn't very nice to her while they were together for 15 years and he wasn't particularly nice to her after they were together, after they ended. And, you know, to come into a bar and ask for forgiveness, I get, I get why he was doing that, and I get that that happens, but, like, it's not, it doesn't make for an interesting character to me. That's not to say that that's not exactly the character he was supposed to be. It yeah. just didn't make for, for that, for that interesting of viewing. So, because, like, there are characters that you can dislike and be really interested to see them on screen, and they can even steal the show sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is not one of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying because I think it's like, you know, in the end, he finally realizes that the the good thing in front of him was not Tucker Crow, but it was Annie. Um, but you're at the same time, we're like, well, you should have seen that all yeah. along. Well, um, and and what's what what I do want to add to this part because I think this makes it like I don't know. I I also want to acknowledge that I'm maybe I'm being I'm I'm crapping on this movie a little bit more than I dislike mm-hmm. it. If that makes sense, so I do want to take a moment after. I finished this thought and and maybe re-highlight some of the things I did like about this movie. But I don't think so it's like one of those things where like yes, he realizes what was actually what was physically in front of him the entire time, Annie was the thing that he should have been caring more about rather than Tucker Crow. At the same time, like what's so great about Annie either? Like she's yeah, not a bad person, but like, she doesn't have any good too. qualities though. <laughs> like she works at, she works for like this the local like mu- like city museum yeah. that like does exhibits, which like I guess is fine, but like she doesn't have any interests or hobbies. She's, like, not that interesting of a character. Yeah. I, and I do think that that's probably the, the movie's weakest point, because I was sitting here thinking that exact same thing about, like, yeah, maybe he should have seen that Annie was great, but is she really that great? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, like, she's not bad. Not, she, but... Yeah, she's not as bad. She's not overly bad like he is, but, like, she's just blah. Yeah. I think that they both had very valid reasons to think that the other is boring and yeah. wanted more out of their relationship. So, Which and like, they just shouldn't be together. Is the point. Yeah. yeah, like, they just probably shouldn't be together, and they're yeah. not, and that feels right. <laughs> like, alright. Yeah. that Okay, I don't want to crap too much on this movie. I do think those are, like, valid complaints about this movie, but I do want to highlight, like, the family drama aspects, particularly Tucker, Tucker Crow's narrative arc, is, re- is, like, really, really good. It's a really yeah. good part of this movie. Cool. I agree. Alright, so... Unless there's anything else you want to add, I think we can just about in a wrap-up phase here. Sure. Yeah, so what was your favorite scene from, from this movie? Uh, 
so I have two. Um, one, one. Oh, is you got two, some, you're get two scenes for both of these movies today, man. You gotta. Uh, yeah, I know. I got, weed that I got out. Down. But <laughs> yeah. I had two, there are two moments which we haven't really talked about that I wanted to fair enough highlight. Yes. But as far as scene, I really loved the scene in the hospital where like all of his exes <laughs> and all of the oh, family members keep coming in. It was it was cracking me up. There's like more people just kept coming in. And and, and, like, and which wife are you? <laughs> yeah. The yeah. Two, the two, uh, the two sons who like have their headphones in, even as they literally walk in the door to see their dad after he's yeah. had a heart attack, and they just have their headphones in the whole time. Um, but, but then as far as moments, small moment I like, probably the moment which made me laugh the hardest was um, when Tucker gets to Annie's house and he he is walking around the house while Annie is in the bathroom with Jackson and he discovers like the shrine that uh, that Duncan has set up for. Um, yep. Tucker and and Annie realizes that he's about to discover and she like runs after him and finds him in the room and he's looking at the picture I can't remember is it like his high school something what was I, what was it remember he's looking at the picture and he's like this is a picture of me and like my high school graduation or something it's not high school it's, no it's more it's obscure like, than that it's like some yeah, really yeah, it's, it's really obscure that. thing but it, it was just hilarious like the way that he said it and like his reaction and stuff like to finding this room where Duncan has all this you know stuff devoted to Tucker Crow and like these pictures that he probably doesn't even have. I mean, clearly because because Duncan yeah. has it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, th- those those are fitting scenes. I've already said that my favorite scene was the beach interaction between um, Chris O'Dowd and Ethan Hawke, and I just I wish I could repeat the interaction for the for the podcast viewers, but unfortunately I'd have to bleep over half of it. Um, so I, I can't repeat it, but it is really funny because just the when. So I, I, to, to set the scene maybe a little bit more, because I kind of skimmed over it earlier, but, you know, basically Annie and Tucker and, all right, na- name me again the kid, the kid's name. Jackson. Jackson, there we go. I'm never going to remember that kid's name. Um, sorry. Annie, Tucker, and Jackson yeah. are on the beach, kind of just enjoying a nice day in Newcastle, you know? Um, and I assume it's in Newcastle. It's probably not, though. Um, but anyway, uh, they're enjoying a nice little day on the beach, and then you have... Chris O'Dowd's character, uh, Duncan, and his new, uh, his fellow teacher that he had, uh, I don't know, is eloped the right word? I don't know. Uh, kind of gone, kind of left Annie for, her name's Gina, we briefly mentioned her earlier in my mistaken identity of characters in this movie, it continues, and they see, they see Annie on the beach, and they, because she's not standing immediately with Tucker and Jackson, who are making a sandcastle. It's not immediately clear they're together. So he runs down there because he thinks that she's come to the beach to confront him. And then on his way down to the beach, Annie sees him and she's like, oh God, no, this is awful. I don't want this. Thinking that he... This isn't how she wanted it to go down. Yeah, thinking that he's running to her to confront her. And at the same time, obviously, she has Tucker Crow (laughs) waiting in the wings. And so he runs up. He's like, oh, how are you doing? And then, like, Tucker Crow and Jackson all come. like, oh... You're with a man here, and then they introduce each other, and he is the nonplussed look on Chris O'Dowd's face is like yeah. right up there for me with Topher Grace as David Duke oh, at the yeah. end of Black Klansman. It is so it great. Be more perfect, yeah. yeah, and I I was rewatching the trailer trailer for this after the movie because well I should say rewatch I was watching the trailer for this movie for the first time after I saw this movie and they edit out the scene uh, they edit out the edit out the bad parts of the scene well I should say the, the expletive parts of the scene and they're yeah. just like oh that's funny uh, or whatever and he like talks about some other character that he is or whatever 
I can't remember. I can't remember which it is. So I'm really, I'm really falling flat right now in this yeah. in this delivery. Uh, typical, I guess. But anyway, he, the nonplussed reaction for, uh, that that Chris O'Dowd's character has, it, and then ultimately his like comeback for like getting like him believing essentially that Annie has put some older guy up to kind yeah. of introduce himself as Tucker Crow or yeah. whatever. And then uh, you have the follow up scene afterwards where he comes over later at, when he starts to realize that oh he's maybe like this is Tucker Crow. Window, yeah, he's like peeking through the window and then asks to see his passport. Yeah. This so, is all in order. This is all in order. Yeah. So the, the, those kind of like first interactions were really, really funny, and I really enjoyed them. Yeah. All right. What score are you going to give Juliet Naked? Probably not a 10, right? No, not a 10. Okay. Um, I, I feel like I'm beating the same drum here, but I do think that this movie, like I said, belongs in the same league as Set It Up and Crazy Rich Asians. So I'm going to give it the same score that I gave to those, and I'm going to give it an 8.4. I keep forgetting that you've given those movies such high scores because I did not give them that high of a score. I, for what they are, they're very good. Fair enough, fair enough. I'm giving this score uh, 6.5. All right. Yep. It should be higher, but no, I, don't I, think forgive, so. I forgive you. I knew that I, I was going to come out higher on this one. I don't think this movie should be higher, man. Like, two of the characters are really boring. One, one is. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. We'll, we'll agree to disagree on that point. All right, yeah. I think we should just about wrap things up for Juliet Naked. We'll take another break, and when we return, we'll be quickly going over a few other movies we've been watching, and then we'll dive into some movie trivia schmodown and some news. We'll be back in a sec. Welcome back to part three of today's episode of Some Like It's Scott. Before we get into the on this week, we do have a few other movies the two of us would like to talk about. We've been watching quite a few over the Labor Day weekend. And Scott, why don't you go first? What other movies uh, would you like to talk about today? Yeah, so I have just three that I'll, that I'll touch on quickly. A couple of documentaries to start out with um, that I, I've been wanting to catch up ever since they were in theaters. These are two movies that were in theaters like when I was in D.C. this summer. And I kept meaning to go see both of them, and I never did. But I'm really glad that I caught up with both of them now. Um, The first one is Won't You Be My Neighbor, um, which, of course, is the Mr. Rogers documentary. Um, And I'm looking up who the director is now. Uh, Morgan Neville, that's right. Um, He's he's kind of a a popular documentarian. Um, He also made Best of Enemies, which is a really good documentary about uh, William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal going at each other in, I guess, the 70s. Uh, and he made 20 Feet from Stardom, uh, which is a documentary about backup singers that was an Oscar winner. But um, this one, I think, absolutely has Oscar potential as well in the documentary category. Um, I really just think that this is a movie that we kind of need in this day and age. Um, because we, we've come to a time where there, it seems like there are no heroes anymore. There's like, even when, you, when someone, when you want to believe that someone is like... Uh, an icon and like you know it really is everything that everyone says they are um it, it usually there's some sort of seamy backstory that always ends up coming out but mr rogers is like the total antithesis of that he is we did not deserve him um he it was just a great and, and inspirational human um and i i really like the way this documentary probes the the different uh, the, the way that his show was was very progressive and especially when it comes to race relations and like 
how in the 60s and 70s he went when when there were these laws which prevented black people from going in the same swimming pools as white people and he had an episode where he invites the black cop officer clemens um to his house and um and they're they're soaking their feet and he's soaking his feet in the swimming pool and he like invites mr officer clemens to come soak his feet and just the scene of like their feet in a swimming pool like soaking next to each other how how like he so subtly was able to convey that hey no we're not different um and so i I really like that aspect of it the way that it, it sort of tied everything into to modern day and yes um, I think that this movie is obviously very one-sided in praising Mr. Rogers, but also don't think there's very much you can criticize about him. And this is something I'll get into when I talk about the other documentary which I saw, um, which is a little bit different, I think. But um, but I, I you know I, I think it, it feels right that this movie is so positive about Mr. Rogers because there is so much to love, and I don't even know what kind of negative they would really focus on anyway. Um, so I, I just really enjoyed this movie and learning more about Mr. Rogers and the show because... I think maybe I was just a little bit too young for the show. I mean, I, I do remember it coming on, like, PBS and stuff when I was young. Mm-hmm. But I never really watched it, and I certainly wasn't growing up, like, during its heyday, like, people maybe 10 or 15 years older than me were. Um, mm-hmm. So just getting to learn that all, all about him and learn that, yeah, he really was this great person. And the way that he, you know, he cared for the, all of the kids who appeared on his show um, was really, like, we have never seen anything like probably never will again. Um, so I give this movie a nine. I think it's I think it's a really really great documentary, and it's something that everyone, absolutely everyone, should see um, because of how positive and how um, you know warm hearted it will make you feel at the end of it. Um, so then the other documentary which I saw um, is another one I've been wanting to catch up on for a long time, and that is RBG, which of course is a documentary about famed Supreme Court Justice um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, directed by Julie Cohen and Betsy West. Um, CNN and, Films, same people who made, uh, well, yeah. same production company as Three Identical Strangers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that this movie, um, if, you know, so to me, like, I, I feel like I can barely objectively review it because I'm such a SCOTUS, I'm such a Supreme Court nerd that, like, just watching this movie for me was just, like, such an enjoyable experience. Like, as it's going through all of these famous cases that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, primarily cases that she argued as an attorney. Because, of course, before she was on the Supreme Court, she was a very influential civil rights attorney and argued a lot of cases before the Supreme Court that had to do with gender discrimination. And it just was very instrumental in uh, getting, uh, you know, women legal protections that they did not have. And Um, and I don't know if you know this, actually, on that note, there is a film coming out, a biographical drama. Yeah, Yeah, on the basis of sex, which is Felicity Jones' RBG. Yeah, coming out later this year. I think, I think Christmas Day. Well. I think it's Christmas Day, actually. Yeah. Yep. I will say that, that that one thing, they actually leave out one of the best RBG stories that has to do with um, her uh, her time as a lawyer, and particularly the, the case of Craig versus Boren, which is like the big gender discrimination case um, that came before the Supreme Court. And I think that the reason they leave it out, because it's not actually a case that RBG argued, but she does have a very significant role in it, and I won't tell the whole story now. Um, but you should definitely go look into that because it is a great story uh, about how she was able to get involved in this case, even though she wasn't one of the attorneys on it. Um, and I, I, I think it's something that would have added some flavor to this documentary. But also, you know, maybe they, they felt like they didn't need to add it in because 
he didn't try the case, but I, I would have liked to see it in there. But I think that, for me, while this movie is an extremely enjoyable experience, very informative, I think that, for me, it, the, part, the fact that it is so one-sided um, is a little bit distracting in, in this case because I think that there, there are a lot of people out there who would, would have critiques about, about Justice Ginsburg's judicial philosophy and the fact that she votes in lockstep with um, you know, the left side of the court um, uh, in pretty much every single case. Um, and so I, I think that um, it's not the same situation as Won't You Be My Neighbor where you have someone who's like universally loved and there's, there's no criticism really of them out there. Um, although they, I will say in Won't You Be My Neighbor, they briefly touch on like how people criticize Mr. Rogers for like, but it, anyway, but, but they, they, they kind of make those critiques look ridiculous. In this movie, I, in RBG, I would have liked to see more like reason critiques of her judicial philosophy. Like the only, only person that they really have who's like, isn't just saying how great Justice Ginsburg is the whole time is Orrin Hatch, um, the Republican senator. Um, but even he is like saying, oh, well, I don't, I disagree with you, but I think you're a great justice and you deserve to be on that court, this court, which is obviously true. But I think that I would have liked to hear from people who, you know, don't, don't align with her judicial and political views, really, um, just to get a, a, a more full body picture of who RBG actually is. Um, and so I think that maybe that's why the documentary suffers a little bit for me. Um, and so I'll give it a 7.5 just because I think for me it is really it is still really enjoyable and I think if you're interested in the law and in the Supreme Court at all then it's absolutely a must watch and I think that I, I would really love to see a similar series of documentaries about like all of the justices like or you know a lot of the most influential justices because the Supreme Court is such a like there's no body in our in our politics that is so important but is yet so secretive at the same time and we just don't know very much about the Supreme Court and the people who sit on her are so private. So I loved getting to see sort of the inside of her life, and I would love to see that about other justices as well. Um, and finally, I saw a, a movie that's not a documentary, a drama that I've actually – so I've, I've been wanting to catch up with it for – well, not catch up because it's just come out recently, but I've been wanting to see it for a while just because I, I'm a big fan of two of the actresses in this movie. I think they're very underrated. Um, but this movie is called, it's, it's a very, very low budget indie called Support the Girls, um, directed by Andrew Buchowski. And um, the movie stars Regina Hall um, as the proprietor of this sort of, it's, it's like a Hooters style sports bar and restaurant um, where they have like, you know, scantily clad girls who are serving like, um, you know, beer and wings and stuff like that while sporting events are playing. Um, and it's, it's really just about one day. It, it, the whole thing takes place over one day. It's about one day in her life and in the lives of several of the girls, two of whom are played by Haley Lou Richardson and um, Dylan Galula, who are the two actresses that I was mentioning earlier that I'm a huge fan of. I think that Haley Lou Richardson is like an extremely underrated actress. I really want her to be in tons of movies. She was great in Edge of 17. She was great in Columbus, which is the movie I mentioned earlier with her and John Cho. Um, and I think she's, this might be our best performance in this movie. She's like the, she's really like the, the leader of the, the group of waitresses, the group of servers. And her character is just like, has a real strong Southern accent and it's just like very charismatic. And, but she, she knows how to, how to keep her cut. She knows how to give her customers what they want. Um, and there's a reveal about this character, which is kind of surprising, but also kind of funny and kind of nice, which I really enjoyed about, um, 
uh, about this character. I think she does a great job. And I think Dylan Galula, the other actress I mentioned, um, she she's been in stuff like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. She was in Flower earlier this year. Um, I I, th- I just think she's hilarious, and I think this movie underutilizes her, unfortunately. But she plays another one of the girls. She plays like kind of a new recruit, and she does have one great scene at the end of the movie where she things are getting kind of off the rails in the restaurant, and she she decides to take matters into her own hands in a very uh, colorful way. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that scene. But I, I think this is a really good movie. Um, you know, it's it's very understated. Um, it, it's going to move too slow for some people, I think. But I, I really like, and I think Regina Hall really, um, it, it's a really powerhouse performance from her in this central role. I really love just the, the pacing of the movie from the way that she she finds her home in this place where, you know, some people might point to it and say that this is like offensive or something like that. But she really, she, it, it, she, she sees the empowering element of it. And like, she empowers these girls to be more than, um, you know, what they're presented to be. Um, and it eventually leads to a, a great ending. Like the last scene of this movie is absolutely great. Um, and it was absolutely the payoff that I wanted. Um, so, you know, it's a very small, very understated movie, like I said, but it's definitely worth checking out. I think it's on VOD now, so you can watch it that way. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's really about the performances and I think they're really strong, especially Regina Hall and Haley Lou Richardson. Is and, it really uh, on see, VOD already? Okay. It just came out last month. Yeah, but I think that they released it to, to VOD because they, they, you know, it's not opening in a lot of theaters and they want more people to see it. But I didn't give it a number, but I'll give it an eight. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, so I think that it's good that we're getting a little bit more documentary coverage. My plan is to also see uh, either, not either, both, Won't You Be My Neighbor and RBG by the end of the year. I, they actually showed RBG on, on CNN um, last, last Sunday night. Um, so I think that a lot of people might have actually watched it through that medium because it didn't do that well in theaters. Won't You Be My Neighbor did decently well, I think. Uh, yeah. I mean, documentaries never really fare that well in theaters, yeah. unfortunately, but I think relative to documentaries, Won't You Be My Neighbor did very well. And I think what you're talking about is it's a documentary we need to you know chronicle the life of a person who's maybe too good to be true, but was true, but was true, and was, and was the, the hero that maybe America needs, but not the one it deserves. To use a dark nightline, yes, but um, sure. yeah. Anyway, moving on. I also have seen a movie in the last couple of weeks that I'd like to talk about, and that is uh, a Netflix rom com, Year of the Rom Com, Scott. To all the boys I've loved before, absolutely. Uh, very much in the vein of, uh, of set it up in the sense that this is a Netflix exclusive release. Um, I don't remember if set it up was based on a book or not. I don't think it was, but this, I don't think so. yeah, but this is based on the book. This is based on the first novel in a series by Jenny Han. Of the same, the the novel has the same name as this one, and it follows basically the the life of uh, this this I think it's Korea like Korean American girl named uh, Lara Jean, played by Lana Condor. She's a sixteen year old high school student who who basically she's kind of she has this very close relationship with her sister, who's actually played by uh, is it A from Pretty Little Liars. I can't. Oh, what? Who, who oh, was no. A ultimately? Because I, I gave up on that show. I don't think we ever really found out who. Oh, a was. I, actually, I don't. I don't think it's A. It's um, it's her. It's Janelle Parrish. Uh, she plays. Which one was she? Uh, she, I think maybe she was A. I don't remember. 
I I don't know if we need to was jump. She, was she Mona? Mona, yes, that's who I'm thinking yes. of. Yes. Well, I think there was a part where they part where we thought she was A, but then she was. I don't know. That show got too complicated for me. Yeah, we both gave up after well, pr- yeah. probably too many seasons to be honest. But anyway, yeah. um, yeah. So Janelle Parrish plays her plays her sister. Uh, Margo, who she has a really close relationship with. But the key to this movie is that Margo is going to college and Lara Jean kind of has to navigate the last two years of high school uh, on her own, junior and senior year. And this this takes place over the course of maybe kind of like half to two-thirds of her junior year of college. And the, the story is about her, essentially, she's written all of these letters to the, pretty much anyone she's ever had a very intense crush on. She's wrote letters to and then like kept them in this little box in her room. Um, and hides it away. And one of the people that she's written this letter to is actually Margot's ex-boy... Well, Margot's boyfriend at the start of the movie, ex-boyfriend when she goes to college. Uh, they break up. And, you know, they... Essentially, her sister Margot had met uh, this guy. His name, I believe, is... Uh, oh, goodness. I can't remember the guy's name. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. But basically, this guy who is, um, who, basically, so yeah, so they met, so Margot had met this guy through Lara Jean, and started dating, uh, but, you know, Lara Jean kind of liked this guy first, or whatever, but then, you know, one day, she, she also has a little sister, who's definitely the comedic relief of this movie, she's great, she slays in this movie, um, her name's Kitty, played by Anna, Anna Cathcart, um, one day, she's, like, had a, a night in with her sister on a Friday night. She'd fallen asleep on the couch, and her sister goes up to her room and finds this box and mails all these letters. And all chaos presumes. She also has this rival at school um, whose name is... Uh, I can't remember anyone's name in this movie, apparently. But basically, her rival at school is dating this guy played by Noah Centennial. His name's Peter. Um, and... She, they like break up or something right before this letter gets mailed, and then he, re- this guy's also one of the people who receives a letter from Lara Jean. Uh, his name again, his name's Peter, and this kind of this case of the movie is basically they see this situation where they can create a create a mutually beneficial situation where they pretend to be dating, and essentially the reason is one because. Margot, which is again Lara Jean's sister, has recently broken up with her boyfriend. Um, they see this. He is really confused and is really upset, and she really doesn't want Margot to find out. But she doesn't want him to know that she ever liked him, and wants doesn't want basically wants to reject his advances for the the lack of a better word here. And so she decides that she wants to be in this in a relationship with Peter to basically prevent. This other guy from being, you know, get the wrong idea that she's interested in him still and, want, and could be in a relationship with him. Um, at the same time, Peter wants to get back together with his ex-girlfriend, but wants to make her jealous. Uh, I'm not is, keeping up with this, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. So basically, it laid out like this. Her, okay, so her, so okay. There's Lara Jean, and then there's Jen. Jen is her rival at school who was dating Peter. Peter and Jen break up. I'm drawing a map over here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Peter wants to make Jen jealous, and because uh-huh. Lara Jean is Jen's rival... So he gets with Lara, her, okay. When this letter is mailed to him, he's like, oh, this is weird, one. <laughs> Why did I receive this letter? And two, I see a situation where this could actually be really beneficial to me, and I could be in a relationship with this girl to get Jen back. Yeah. Meanwhile, on the other side... Lara Jean has all these letters, right? One of them went to Peter, 
one of them went to her neighbor, who is Margot's ex-boyfriend, who is her Margot being her bigger, her older sister. Yes. Um, I think his name is Josh. It's coming back to me now. So there's Josh. Josh's ex, Margot's ex-boyfriend, and to so that basically to to make things to smooth things over with Josh and make not give him the wrong idea, and to also hide things from essentially to hide things from Margot, who's off at college. She's like, oh. I also should be in this relationship with Peter. It's very complicated. It's not that complicated on screen. Um, um, But basically, they decide (laughs) decide to enter into this contract where they're in a relationship with each other. Uh, But of course, things don't go according to plan, and the course of this movie is about uh, whether or not they are really just putting on a ruse or whether they're actually falling in love with each other. Um, But it's entertaining at times. I thought this movie was slow to start, but really picked up in the last half to two-thirds of the movie. Um, I think that the chemistry between Noah Centineo and Lana Condor, who plays Laura Jean, is spectacular. Um, and this is like your, your typical like teen romance comedy movie um, in the vein... It's a teen romance comedy in the vein of something like A Love, Simon, right? It, it's that genre. It's not, it's not just a rom-com. It's like a teen rom-com. Sure. Um, but it's not as good as Love Simon. I mean, you know how much I love I like Love Simon from earlier yeah. this year. Um, but it's really funny. It's generally funny. Some of the characters are actually you end up reading for at the end. I wasn't in- very impressed by the start of the movie. It has you know how much I love bad VO, um, and this movie starts off with some really bad VO. Um, so yeah, vo- voice. Yeah, that's o- something we didn't talk about in Juliet Naked because there was a lot of. Uh voiceover in that movie as well yeah i didn't love that either um i I tried to stop crapping on that movie too much so yeah (laughs) oh i didn't mention it but yeah you know how much i i don't love uh voiceover when it's done poorly and i think this movie starts off that way but still nothing of the level of hot summer nights uh, for comparison um because you have like that rando boy voiceover for like the beginning oh, end of the gosh. film, yeah, yeah, worst ever. Yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, th- this movie ends up being quite charming by the end of it. I think that to to say this movie is in the vein of Get It Up, I I know, or sorry, it Get It Up, Set It Up, Jesus, um, Set It Up is is Get a, It Up would be a very different type <laughs> of movie, and very much. I think it's it's charming, and ultimately, I think does receive a positive review, but it's not a super positive review, uh, which I think I mean for you it might be different, right? Because you gave Set It Up a very good score, but I think that. The qualities of this film are, are pretty similar to set it up in that it, it has a charming cast of characters who maybe you're not 100% sure about at first, but ultimately come to like quite a, bu- quite a lot. And uh, their characters are, are roughly the same. Like I said, like the actors and actresses do a, good, do a good job for the most part. There's one character in particular. I mentioned Kitty already, but to mention another, there's like the best friend of, of Lara Jean at school. Her name is... Christine, and to add more to this like crazy web of connections, she's Jen's cousin. It's very confusing, uh, this part, actually. Uh, but basically, she she has some sick burns on on a couple people at the during throughout this film. She's like the cool best friend that probably is you know, a better person than Lara Jean to, uh, to be interested in. But nevertheless, I think that you know this this movie's uh, not not great, uh, but it's enjoyable. It was like a nice. I think I watched this on like a Sunday night when I. Probably right after podcasting, to be honest, um, and it's like a it's like a decent way to spend like ninety five minutes or however long this movie is. And if you like set it up, I think you'll like this in terms of Netflix rom coms. Uh, I give it a, about the same score. I'd say like um, uh, honestly, I think I'm gonna get the same score as Juliet Naked at six point five. Yeah, I've, I've been interested to check it out because I have heard a lot of good buzz for it, and I you know I have enjoyed obviously the other 
two Netflix rom-coms that I watched this year and set it up, and then Candy Jar, which I talked about way back when. But I enjoyed both of those, and this one's been getting some good buzz, so I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it could just be further further evidence of the, um, how do we say this, the year of the rom-com. Is the year of the earlier. rom-com, yeah. Yeah, all right. So I think that's all the movies we're talking about today. We've talked about quite a few, way more than we normally do, six of them. Um, but let's move on to some movie trivia now, a, t- a tangential topic that we always love to talk about on here. Scott, what, what would you like to talk about today in terms of the uh, schmodown? Yeah, so it's been kind of a light couple of weeks, actually, in the schmodown. Um as we're gearing up for the live event, which actually took place last night, and we'll get the videos this week. Uh, Tuesday will be the Intergeekdom Championship between Jason Inman and Mara Kanopic. And then Friday, um, we will get the uh, first match of the Anarchy Team Tournament uh, between the team of Dan Merrill and uh, John Roca against the team of Stacey Howard and Winston Marshall. And that will kick off Anarchy, which will be what will be consuming the showdown for the next two or three weeks, I would say. Um, but in that time, in, in the past couple of weeks, we have had a couple of matches which I want to touch on. Uh, first of all, we had a, a great Patreon exhibition match for the month, uh, Jurassic Park. Absolutely. Aimed, um, between two, two people who I really would love to see more of in the Schmodown, Perry Nemiroff and Cody Hall. Um, Absolutely. And, this, know, match was a, a, this match was amazing. <laughs> it really was. I, and I'm not a huge... I'm not a big Jurassic Park fan at all, as you know from our discussion of Jurassic World on a previous episode. I really only liked the first movie. Um, so I wasn't like super invested in the questions or anything like that, but I still really enjoyed this match. Uh, like I said, because I really enjoyed Perry and Cody, for one thing. And I was just really interested to see how their knowledge would be, because Jurassic Park is like, you know, it's not, we've never had a Jurassic Park match before. We've never, it's never been in the inner geekdom or anything like that. So I just really wasn't sure how deep the, their knowledge would go in the series but the answer is it, it went deep. really really deep yeah. Um, and yeah this match came down to the very last question it's crazy to me that there's only been three Iron Man matches in um, Schmodown history and two of them have come down to the last question um, and this one came down to uh, the last question after Cody like Ken did in the Star Wars Iron Man match made a really nice comeback in the speed round um, but Perry who had led for most of the match um, was able to pull out the final question and come away. I think it was like 53, 52 maybe was the final. Something like um, that. But yeah, this was, this was a really enjoyable match. I, I'm guessing you enjoyed it as well. Oh, absolutely. I think I actually ended up... I, somehow, this never happens. I was able to watch this match before you. And yeah. um, I was like... During the speed round, the last two minutes of the Iron Man match, I was like off my couch. I was like jumping <laughs> up and down. This ma- I mean, this match is incredible. It's, it's like... I mean, we, yeah. we talked about this last month with the uh, the ten dollar level Patreon exhibition match. It's uh, worth it. Yeah, it's worth the ten dollars. I mean, I know I'm not, I, I understand that not every, not everyone can afford ten dollars a month, um, or yeah. it's not something that they that makes sense for their uh, financial budgeting. But if you have the ten dollars, it's worth the money. And I mean, we got Harloff and Ellis this month in a five match. Five, five round match, yeah. and like I don't know if you saw the promo, but it was getting me pretty hyped for it. I did see the um, promo. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I'm I'm so excited it out for that. Oh man, <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me. It's yeah. a, it's a good promo. That one's gonna be good. But uh, in terms of the matches that actually count, um, we also had a big singles match. Of course, John Roker defeated Ben Bateman, and he was uh, he set to face was set to face the winner of. The match we got last week, which was Andrew Guy against Mark Riley. Um, mm-hmm. This, of course, was the first singles match that Riley has played since, gosh, since 
who knows when. Probably since he lost the title belt last year um, to Dan Merle. Um, it's the first singles match. So yeah, it's the first singles match that he's played since then. Yeah. Um, of course, he did play in the Ultimate Showdown teams last year, mm-hmm. and he did make a free-for-all appearance. Um, but, you know, I was really interested to see how he would do in this match because, obviously, he is a former champion, one of the greatest in Showdown history. And, but, of course, Andrew Guy is, you know, he's taking a claim. He's trying to, to make a run through the horsemen on his way uh, to, to a title match with Bibiani. Um, and once again, he, uh, he pulled off the upset. Not, I will say, not as in convincing a fashion this time, although he did not Mark Riley. He did have a TKO. I don't think it was as, as convincing in terms of his own um, abilities. Like, he didn't score as many points. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't getting as many questions right as he did in that match against Merle. Yeah. Um, but still, I mean, it, it was very impressive um, for him to go up, for him to, you know, t- twice now go up against former champions and TKO them after having been sort of an average player beforehand. Having been, I think, what anyone would say what was the weak link of team action. I'm not sure if you can really say that anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, very impressive. He will face his his dad, John Roca, now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it, for Riley, I... I I even made a comment on the video, I think, that I, I don't think everyone should freak out about it because he got some really hard questions in this match. Yeah, his scores like his, and soundtracks he, category was tough. Yeah, which, it was it was weird to me, too, that they, they had that as like a strength and he took it so quickly because I've never seen him get scores and soundtracks before. I've never seen him like listed as a strength before. So I didn't even realize that this was really a strength for him. Um, like the only person who, who I know that is really good at, at scores and soundtracks is Christian. Um, and... So I, I was kind of surprised at that, and I, I think it, it definitely bit him in the butt, because uh, that being said, they were really hard scores and soundtracks questions. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't think you can freak out too much about Riley's performance. I think he'll he'll respond in the uh, in the Anarchy Team Tournament, where his partner is um, Ben Bateman. Ben Bateman. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was something, and, and Andrew Guy has, has a chance to do something pretty unprecedented. Yeah, he's gonna run through three of the five horsemen and maybe get a belt if he can. If he can, if he can put it together. That would be something, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, where's where's the belts? They'd finally be able to ask that question and not get roasted for it if if Andrew Guy uh, was able to to win the belt. Yeah, I I love all the. Uh, I was on the like movie trivia showdown Facebook page, which is honestly it's becoming like a, a cesspool of negativity. So I don't yeah, know. Some, sometimes, yeah, on certain occasions. It is. Yeah, but I really enjoyed all the like butt hurt horseman fans on there. Like, why yeah. don't why don't champs get like more respect? I'm just like, grow up. Champs lunch. <laughs> yeah, I was like, grow up, guys. Jesus, they lost a match. Like, if you can't if you yeah, can't like I, take if you can't take it, then like, why are you watching it? I, I mean, I, I of course was rooting for Merle, rooting for Riley, and I will be rooting for Roca. But I also, you know, appreciate the, what this what Andrew Guy's doing and what this storyline means for the Schmodown. Because, like, you know, this storyline has been going on since the free-for-all. Like, or, I mean, really since the tackle. Like, really since he tackled John Roca, um, Andrew Guy has, like, been ascending to the top heel in this league. But then, of course, we had this whole introduction of this storyline with him saying, I killed Merle, I killed Merle. And it's one thing to have that storyline, but it's another thing for him to actually go on this run now. To, for him to actually follow through on the storyline, which I think no one actually expected that he was going to do, 
I think, like, Christian has to be loving it because, like, you know, he's obviously the one who comes up with all these storylines. So for this storyline to pay off in, in the way that it is right now, uh, with with Guy literally facing the man that he tackled um, at, the, at the Spectacular with a title, with a number one contender place on the line, like... You know, you can't you can't write this stuff. Yeah, well, as much as Christian tried, uh, yeah. it, it came as to fruition for him. No, and, yeah. and you know, I I had I don't have the same affinity for the Horseman that you do, and so yeah. I will I will raise my hand and say that I was rooting for Guy when he played Merle, and you I was rooting. Haven't been watching the league for as long, which is probably why. Oh, absolutely no, that's yeah. abs- I think that's absolutely why. Yeah. Um, uh, and I was rooting for Guy when he was playing Riley this past week, and I think that the biggest letdown for me was that Andrew Guy did not jump onto the table and start <laughs> flipping everyone off again. Yeah. Because that's that's still, like, moment of the year for me when he beat Merle and was, like, on it, top of I the mean, table. It, it's, hard, it's, hard to, it's hard to argue with that, even though it was not my favorite moment, of course, because I was rooting for Merle. But, yeah, I think that's that's about what we have going on in the Schmodown world right now. Yeah, you know, we'll like have... like you said, it's been pretty slow. I mean, you think of, yeah. like, they literally didn't even release a match on, on Friday, so... We'll have uh, we'll have a lot of anarchy to talk about um, next time, though. Uh, we, we did, you know, we have we did have a few shakeups in the in the teams, and of course, we actually had uh, the bracket come out for anarchy. And like, honestly, I don't know if you watched the anarchy team special when they released the bracket, but I, I kind of I kind of agree with Christian's bracket that he was doing throughout the entire show. You know, originally, I know I said I thought that Snyder and Andreco were going to come out on top. But I really think I'm really leaning more towards the team of JTE and Lon Harris now. Um, but I also think there could be some upsets. Like I could see Hewick and Seibold upsetting uh, McQueenie and Chandler, um, and then I could also see um, Ethan Irwin and Sabina Graves making a run. Okay. Also, like, I'm really curious what you think of. I mean, I get the whole Ethan Irwin shakeup because the schedules just didn't work out. Yeah. But what's the deal with Brienne's? I mean, was it because she really didn't want to be with like the Kingsman guy? I guess that's what it is. I don't know. Um, and, you know, maybe with Clark Wolf dropping out, uh, or I mean, with her, you know, not being in Anarchy because the Shire Wolves won the title, maybe they wanted another competitor who was, you know, similar to her level um, that would, so it would be fair for McQueenie, like that he would, you know, he would get a, 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 someone who was a decent match for Clark Wolf. And I think that Brienne is that. I mean, she beat Clark in a, in a singles match last year. So, mm-hmm. um, I think maybe that's thinking, but you know, at the same time, like I'm sure Devon Stewart was counting on having a you know a pretty decent partner in Brienne, and now he has like a a Patreon or something as his partner. Yeah, a who, patron. Who is his partner? I think he has like that Rachel something, a new a new a new fan that they introduced that, uh, that. along with Chance Ellison is going to play in the in the Got Anarchy uh, tournament. But probably, I can't see them advancing past the first round. I'm not sure. I think they're facing, they're actually facing KO and Chance Ellison in the first round. Um, that sounds right. And I actually, I think KO and Chance are going to make a run. Like, I actually have them in the finals of my bracket against JT and Harris. So. Yep. Yeah, so exciting stuff ahead. But absolutely for the showdown. Absolutely right. All right, so to wrap things up, as always, we have a little bit of news that we want to hit. And first is kind of a follow-up to a story that we started two weeks ago on our last episode, and, and then, of course, uh, you actually mentioned it or, or alluded to it briefly already earlier in this episode, and that is that the Academy has is going to now postpone Best Popular Film category. Woo! Yeah. Hallelujah. I'm, yeah, geez. It's such a mess. I mean, goodness, goodness gracious. It's so... I mean, I think it literally is what we were talking about last week, how 
no studios were actually going to market their movies as in the best popular film category, so the Academy kind of had no choice. It just would have been really funny if there's like one, like only movie, like some just like like Slender Man <laughs> like or some crap Jurassic movie. World, yeah. yeah, just like goes and markets so stuff. Like we have one nominee in the best popular <laughs> film category. It's like a film like two percent on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. <laughs> would have been funny, but no, that that's a good thing. I hope they I hope they indefinitely postpone it, never bring it back, unless they seriously revamp what the idea of best popular film is. But that was pretty yeah. insulting. All right, uh, a little bit more substantive news, or, or maybe more directly movie-related news. Ryan Johnson and Daniel Craig are going to team up for a murder mystery movie. I'm feeling it. I mean, you know, like we already talked about, uh, you're a big fan of mystery thrillers. I am as well. Um, and I'm a big fan of these two people. Um, so, I mean, we actually, Ryan Johnson, you know, he, he sort of has a little history, which he made a movie called Brick back in the mid-2000s, which was also kind of a murder mystery starring um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, so I have high expectations for this. Yeah, you know, I've loved Ryan Johnson since um, Looper, when he made yeah. Looper, which is, I guess, kind of the, the... I guess that's his last movie before The Last Jedi, actually. He, hadn't, mm-hmm. he hasn't done anything since then. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I loved Looper, which is more of... Which sounds something that's more closer to what this movie's going to be than Star Wars, obviously. Right, um, yeah. I mean, Looper is not a mist. Well... It's a thriller. It's, it's, a, it's a drama thriller. Be the closest uh, point, but yeah. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. But no, I'm I'm down for this. I I'm a big fan of Daniel Craig. I, it's hard to say that Daniel Craig is underrated, but I just really don't feel like he's in enough outside of uh, Bond at this yeah, point. Like that's he had, what I was say. yeah, he had Logan Lucky last year, in which he was outstanding. I thought he was amazing in Logan Lucky. Uh-huh. Um, and then he also had like was it was it Deliverance and. He had like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I don't think it was Deliverance. That was uh, that's from the seventies. Yeah, what's the World War Two movie that he was in? Is it yeah, Defiance. I know what you're talking about, but I, Defiance. Yeah. Yeah. Defiance, okay. That's it. Defiance. Yeah. So I, I'm a big Daniel Craig fan. I th- I really want to see him in things. I mean, I love him as Bond, but I also want to see him in things that aren't Bond. Um. So hopefully, hopefully we'll get this sooner rather yeah. than later. But I don't know what Ryan Johnson's uh, schedule is like because he has this. He has all these Star Wars projects going on. Um, True. Anyway. Moving on, Alec. So, in the span of the last two weeks, Alec Baldwin was added to the Joker movie, and at the, like a day later, is now out of the Joker movie. <laughs> I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I was just like, what? like back to back days. I was like stories about Alec Baldwin in the Joker movie. Yeah. I was like, what is this? That's a little. That's a little strange. I will say one thing we did talk about with Black Klansman was like the opening weird opening scene that he has, which I actually thought was kind of funny. Yeah, so I uh, I, re- I rewatched Black Klansman this weekend, um, yeah. and I was also wondering about that. When I first saw the film, I kind of kind of forgot about it, and then I remember that opening scene, and I I still don't fully understand its purpose other than just to like set the context for like the time period. Yeah, I think um, that's probably what it's doing. But you're right; it also is like also funny because he's like forgetting lines and like making yeah, weird he's noises, just, like so ridiculously like racist. Yeah, and... it's pretty bad, but uh, pretty funny. Uh, which is just about on point for Black Klansman because you see some pretty bad stuff in that movie and it's pretty yeah. funny. Um, anyway, yeah, so Alec Baldwin drops out of the Joker movie. Um, not, not sure if... It makes me question whether he was actually ever truly involved with the Joker movie. I don't know. Anyway. I know, yeah, I mean, he can't have done anything in that one day. Yeah, seriously. Uh, we just talked about Ryan Johnson just a few minutes ago. Um, so back... And, and related to Ryan Johnson, the Star Wars franchise, Star Wars Episode Nine. There's been some new casting news. I don't know if you saw this, Scott. Dominic Monaghan and Matt Smith have joined the Star Wars Episode Nine cast, uh, which yeah. begs the question: Who are Dominic Monaghan and Matt Smith playing? 
Yeah, I mean, I did see this. It's not probably as exciting to me as it will be to some people because I, like, am outside the fandom that worships both of these people. Like, I'm not in the, the Lord Hitch. of the Rings fandom or I'm not in the Doctor Who fandom. So, like, I'm not... I'm not uh, probably fanboying about this like a lot of people are, but yeah, we'll be interested to see what characters they play. Yeah, well, I, I love Pippin, and I believe, unless I'm mixing the two up, he plays Pippin in Lord of the Rings. Now I'm second-guessing sure. myself. Of course, oh, of course my I'm goodness. not sure, but I know that he is a, he is a big part of it. Uh, I am uh, I'm freaking out right now. I think that I might have... Uh, yes, I think I did. I think he plays Mary. Um, okay. <laughs> classic. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, we all... We all have we all have those moments. Yeah, he plays Mary, not Pippin, so I'm just getting screamed from the ether of Lord of the Rings fans right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he, he plays Mary, obviously, in Lord of the Rings, as you mentioned. But he's also been in like other really uh, culturally relevant stuff, so like Lost. He was a main character in Lost yeah. for a few yeah. seasons. Yeah. Uh, I like Dominic Monaghan. I'm not a fanboy of him, I wouldn't say, but my uh, my eyes get a little wider when I see his name associated with stuff. Um, sure. Yeah, but it could be interesting. I'm not sure if they're like going to be playing villains or, or heroes. Dominic Monaghan's yeah. been, been villainous in the past, uh, not on Lost or Lord of the Rings, but, uh, well, another show that's already come up once in this in this uh, podcast, um, Fast Forward, which was a uh, show John Cho was in. Dominic Monaghan was also in. He was a villain in that, in that TV huh. show. Anyway, uh, moving on to maybe a little bit sadder no- news to, to end on, um, we had the death of Burt Reynolds. The last yeah. in the last few days, uh, I actually have never seen a movie that that Burt Reynolds has been in, but obviously know who Burt Reynolds is, and it really loved his Saturday Night Live appearances. Yeah, I have it. I also have not seen a lot of his movies, but I do love his performance, and I think many people say it's his best performance um, in Boogie Nights, Paul Thomas Anderson's, um, uh, you know, classic movie from nineteen ninety seven. Um, he, he, he has a great role in that movie as like sort of an adult film producer. Um, and that feels right up his alley. I mean, exactly the kind of mental picture that I have of Burt Reynolds. He almost won the Oscar for this movie. And then I can't remember who beat him out. Um, but it was like, it was between him and whoever it was that, that beat him out for it. Um, but yeah, obviously like a, you know, a, a very influential actor and also he, you know, a big like sex symbol in like the seventies and eighties. So, um, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely RIP to him. Yeah, for sure. A very, very disappointing to say, to say the least. Um, I'm just quickly trying to, uh, look up who won the award for best act or best supporting actor that year. Um, I should, I should know this honestly. Yeah. I thought Oscars was your category, man. Come on. <laughs> um, no. Rachel Cushing would know this. <laughs> Rachel Cushing would know this, probably. Uh, it's the 70s. It gotta be worth it. Oh, Robin Williams won for Goodwill Hunting. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's Can't a, fault that one either, though. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. A tough yeah. one to beat oh. out that year. All right. All right, Pete, to both of them. Indeed. All right, well... I don't know if we have anything else, Scott. I think that should just about do it for episode 18 of okay. Some Like It, Scott. Uh, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Go see Searching. Yes, Go See Searching. Our first Double Ten movie. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, I'm at Scarvey Dent. At Scarvey Dent. All right. And I can be found at, at SShelton2013 over on Twitter. More important, though, we have a, our uh, personal tw- – more important than our personal Twitter pages, I should say. Uh, we do have a Twitter page for this podcast, Some Like It's Scott. It's uh, at Media Plug Pods over on Twitter, and we'd love it if you followed us over there. We'd love it even more, though, if you checked us out over on our podcast Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Pods. There are a whole bunch – of different reward tiers over there, ranging from the $1 level up to uh, way beyond that. And we'd appreciate it so much, even if you just contributed at that $1 level. There'll be different rewards for the different tiers. 
Check them out. See if any of them interest you. That's again www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Um, anyway, if you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, you know, subscribe and shared, all that jazz. We can continue to reach a broader audience, build, build the fan base of this podcast, so to speak. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you taking the time today to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back in two weeks uh, with two new movies, A Simple Favor and The Sisters Brothers. We'll hope you join us again then, but until next time, we hope you have a wonderful day. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Mm-hmm.